double palasha portion this week, Matot Maaseh, is a place where we can learn the importance of the things we say and what we do after we say we're going to do something or not do something. Is a vow really cancelable under all conditions? When is it not? How is it relevant to me? How is it relevant to you? Even more than anything else, we could sometimes look at some of the great sages and think that our lives are so different from them. And they grew up religious, we didn't. They grew up learning Torah, we didn't. So perhaps the troubles we're dealing with, they're not even familiar with them. But what if I told you that one of the greatest rabbis in the history of mankind was literally walking among us just a few years ago had to deal with the same exact problems of a secular family just like you and still manage to become as great as he was. After we do this, we're going to learn about what you wanted to learn about. The questions from all over the world. Questions from young kids. Questions from adults. Questions from the U.S. Questions from across the world. Questions about different aspects of Judaism, from the basics to the advanced. You're going to enjoy the questions. You're going to enjoy the lecture. You're going to enjoy the Torah. Thank you for learning. Enjoy. Share. Leave some comments to let us know what you think. But most importantly, be holy. We are back here on a Wednesday night popular shiu where, Baruch Hashem, after uh, some divrei Torah about the weekly parasha, some current events, different interesting things. After that, uh, you guys will ask some questions and Bezat Hashem HaKadosh Baruch Hu will give us the answers. Tonight's shiu is going to be for the refuah shlema and success of Rabbi Ephraim ben Shulamit, Rabbanit Sarah Bat Anat, Avimori David ben Nesriya, Imimorati Doris bat Zora, um, Sarah bat Esther, and all of Am Yisrael and all the righteous Noahides that uh, continue to uh, contribute and help us with all of the wonderful things that uh, Hashem, the organization is doing. And uh, also another person that uh, wants to remain anonymous, but uh, I'm going to think about them for a second. So first and foremost, thank you everybody for all the continued support. Anybody that wants to continue helping us do all the amazing things that we're doing where the uh, local community here in Florida is uh, getting an enormous new benefit over the last month since we started the Kiruv booth where a couple of our Bachurim are giving out free books, free Torah books to the local community. Uh, not just my book, which to Bo Hashem we've given out uh, thousands upon thousands of copies in Israel. We almost distributed 20,000 copies here in America. Just in the last uh, couple of weeks, it's been uh, a few thousand copies as well, Bo Hashem. And uh, in addition to that, we're also giving out Rav Nisim Yagen books, the Rav Zamir Cohen books, uh, the uh, Yakut Yosef. Bezrat uh, Hashem edition that uh, we did together with the Rishon Etzion uh, that has the halachot uh, regarding Kibud Avaim and also um, uh, the Aratabait, uh, uh, the the halachot, uh, 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 which Baruch Hashem has uh, certainly uh, woken up a few people. We didn't have 
thousands of copies to distribute them like we do some of the other books. So we figured that the best thing to do is just to give it out to the local people here. Um, and Bo Hashem, they're going and people are amazed. People are truly amazed that all of this stuff is free. Uh, many people that are uh, not familiar with the organization are just simply baffled at uh, how we're giving out literally thousands upon thousands of dollars worth of books every single week in, here in this community. We can't do it, at least not for now, until the Kadosh Baruch Hu blesses us with much more, uh, you know, the same way around the country and around the world. But Bezat Hashem, uh, Hashem sees our uh, efforts and how much we desire to help people uh, get closer to Hashem. It'll give us the ability to do it uh, around the world as well. And uh, of course, any opportunity to get people to do mitzvot, whether it's putting on tefillin, putting on tzitzit, learning Torah, is an opportunity we want to have a piece of. And that's uh, what we've been doing here. And of course, the people that are going to our Kiruv store online and ordering the free material to distribute in their community uh, can continue to do so. We still have a bunch of USBs left. We still have a bunch of the uh, copies of my book. And also in the next um, probably week or so, uh, we're going to have actually another new book, another new book by Rabbi Ephraim that uh, we're uh, getting the shipment of uh, over this uh, next week or so. That's going to be for mass distribution. Again, it's in uh, Hebrew, but uh, for anyone out there that uh, wants us to uh, uh, do translation to the books and everything and you uh, have the ability to sponsor it, then by all means, uh, contact us. Sponsoring is very expensive. It's not, uh, it's not a few hundred dollars and it's not even a few thousand dollars. Uh, just to give you an idea, there's one little segment of the book that I uh, worked on sponsoring. It's only 17 pages. It's $4,000 to actually translate it by Talmit Chacham. Because the, you know, the translations are not just, uh, you know, put it on Google or uh, on uh, some other translation program and it works. Uh, the translations are much more difficult than people think. And uh, one particular person that's a big Talmit Chacham uh, that I spoke to about translating uh, my book, he wanted $40,000. Another one wanted a little bit more than $40,000. So these translations are very expensive. Uh, and uh, even more so, it's a, uh, even after the translation, it takes a lot of time to review it and to uh, make sure that everything is edited the right way. Uh, and that's even before printing. And printing, as you all know, Printing is not cheap. So anyone that wants the uh, things uh, um, translated and can contribute to it, uh, by all means, you're welcome to do so. Uh, contact us and we'll be happy to talk to you. But otherwise, we just have to simply uh, continue working on the different projects whenever we can, we do. So with that being said, we're going to get into this parasha, get into the, uh, the, uh, the, the amazing things that we could uh, learn from this parasha, but we have double parasha week, parashat matot and maaseh. And uh, uh, there's endless amount of things that you can learn from every single parasha, but there's going to be a couple of points that I want to cover where you see a common denominator uh, you know, in, the, uh, in these parashot that are certainly applicable uh, to, uh, to what's going on in the world today. I had a, uh, you know, somebody that's a Froom person contact me and uh, ask me about this uh, particular business uh, where somebody that uh, sent him a recording of some type of uh, offer that they have and he asked me, is this cash advance? And uh, after I, you know, I listened to this recording, this sales pitch of what this guy is trying to, uh, to sell him, 
in so many words, it's a uh, not only cash advance, it's cash advance souped up with more wickedness, where they're in essence trying to uh, put more chains around the uh, customer, where uh, the customer is going to be more indebted to them uh, and uh, more uh, uh, obligated to them, where they can never violate uh, even uh, literally the, the smallest letter in this so-called uh, agreement that they have. Uh, but in addition to the high interest that they're going to charge him for these loans, they're also going to charge him a fee for the loan because they're helping him in so many words, manipulate the system. And if that's not enough, they're also going to get a fee for that. So in so many words, it's usury, which is forbidden according to the Torah. Uh, and in addition to uh, uh, more wickedness. And now this is, again, this wouldn't really be mentioned um, if he didn't make the follow-up comment, which is after I told him, yes, this is, uh, this is the same, uh, the same uh, 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 trap with, uh, you know, the same chains that are going to be tied around the customer and taking advantage of the ignorant public with uh, more gold going into the criminal's pockets. That's really all it is. And he said to me, wow, that's what my chavruta that we, I learned Gemara with, that's what he does for a living. So, honestly, it's a, uh, every day, your heart breaks in different ways when you hear that our own brothers in the Jewish community are involved in such horrible businesses, horrible businesses that are destroying not only their lives, but their, their, their bracha that they would have, the future that they would have, the name of the Jewish people that we have, and literally everything, in addition to destroying the, whoever is their, their victims, but the world continues to walk around blind. America continues to allow this business. The, uh, the, the community itself is, in so many words, quiet about it, and it seems like nobody wants to talk, except, Baruch Hashem, us, we speak out against this awful business, awful things that are involved in it along with other things now the good thing is is that when you speak out against things that are forbidden whether it's the things that we've mentioned uh, like the, uh, the the idolatry in wigs or the uh you know uh, heretical uh, uh speeches that uh, different uh you know rabbis or so-called rabbis give uh, and other types of corrupt business practices, when you speak out against it, the good thing about it is that it whoever is looking for the truth has a place to hear it, has a source to rely on, has a place of truth that they could say, oh, I knew there was something wrong, but now I have the stamp of approval. That what... This is, is wrong and I need to run away from it. The bad part about speaking out against the falsehood of the world is that sometimes the, some people will jump on the bandwagon and do the same thing, but not necessarily always with the same intention, where they're going to try to make comments on your page or send you letters or make public statements against you, 
in the name of truth. In the name of truth, but in reality, there's no truth there. So it's important for us to know that anything that we say, we're going to have to either pay for it or get paid for it. Meaning, in the business world, when I was on Wall Street for nearly 20 years, in order for me to deal with a client, that client had to be wealthy because I needed to know that whatever time I'm going to spend with that client, it's if it pays off, I'm going to get paid very well, which means that if I can't make, I don't know, at least fifteen to $45,000 per client, there's really no purpose for me to deal with the person because there are many other people that I can deal with. I can give that client to somebody else that worked for me or somebody else that works at a different firm. But I wanted to, you know, to cater to people that I was able to make a lot more money off of. Now, that meant that if I'm going to spend an hour talking to you, I was expecting to get paid between fifteen to forty-five thousand dollars. That's what I was expecting. If I deliver what you asked for, that's in essence what we're going to get. Now, of course, a lot of work went into it, and it's not necessarily just one hour of talking. But the point is, is that I was either going to get paid for it. Or I was going to pay for it. What's the pay for it part? Meaning I was going to lose a lot of money and time if it didn't work out. Because each and every relationship took a certain amount of investment. An investment of time, an investment of resources, whether it's different employees, different research, different uh, uh, types of uh, uh, things that you would have to do in order to be able to provide this uh, potential customer or existing customer uh, in order for you to be able to benefit. The same concept, as Rabbi Akiva says in the Mishnah, in Masechet Avot, that a Kadosh Baruch Hu runs the world like a business. Everything that you say, you will either get paid for it, or you will have to pay for it. And this is critical for you to understand in order for you to be able to connect to the God of Israel and not some foreign God, not some idol, not some man-made God that people want to believe in. And in essence, this is what Parashat Matot begins with, ends with, and continues into in Parashat Maaseh and ends with as well. In Parashat Matot, we begin with the fact that Moshe Rabbeinu is telling us what HaKadosh Baruch Hu told him. He told them about the laws of vows, of swears. There's a slight difference between the two where the, uh, uh, the nedel and the oath, the oath is, a, uh, um, is called shvuah, the nedel is called a vow. In essence, their rules are the same except the fact that the uh, nedel is uh, when a person prohibits a specific object uh, that's permissible to themselves, like saying, I'm not going to eat, uh, you know, bread anymore. I'm not going to, uh, you know, do something specific that he himself is, you know, causing suffering for himself, but in order to elevate himself spiritually. On the other hand, the, uh, uh, the shvua is forbidden a specific action where he says, I'm not going to eat a, uh, uh, this specific bread. So one is in essence saying he's not going to, uh, this bread is not allowed uh, to, uh, to me. The other one is saying that he's uh, um, not going to eat bread at all. 
they get confused one's prohibiting the object and uh the other case he's forbidding himself doing the object okay yeah okay i'm sorry correction which also shows how important it is to say the right things now in one case this particular bread is forbidden in so many words it's a uh he's committing himself to making whatever this particular object uh, uh forbidden the other uh side is forbidding himself to uh, be involved in this particular project okay anyway the laws between the two are relatively the same the cancellation of them now where is this most common there are two places that this is most common one is when a uh, person is a bal tshuva and uh, or a new convert and they want to elevate themselves spiritually and uh, they know that uh, in order to elevate yourself spiritually you have to the more spirituality you want the more you have to limit the materialism so they decide that they're going to take certain things upon themselves and they'll you know they'll make a uh, you know a neder that uh, they're not going to uh, go to specific places anymore or eat specific food anymore now sometimes they'll make a mistake and say no from now on i i make a vow that i'm going to keep shabbat that is a uh, uh a non-valid or unvalid uh vow because if you're a jew you already made the vow that you're going to observe all of the torah and the mitzvot at mount sinai so you can't make a vow on something you're obligated to do a vow is only something that is for something that's permissible and you are restricting yourself so the first place that people make this nedel is if a, uh, they want to elevate themselves Rav Nisim again used to say that only fools make such nedels only fools why because if you fail if you fail at this restriction that you added to yourself the price you would pay is much dearer is much greater than the benefit you would get if you didn't fail so if you want to take something on take it on but don't make a nedil don't make a nedil why it's a it's a very very costly thing to break one of the things the Gemara says that someone that doesn't observe their nedil can see their wife and kids die so you could just understand the the uh, the ramifications of breaking this nether breaking this vow the other time that you find this is when people are in trouble a person is in trouble he's being sued he got arrested somebody's in the hospital there is a uh, you know major health crisis and they decide to take something upon themselves in order for Hashem to change the decree the two sound similar but they're completely different and we're going to discuss that but inside this these lessons about vows and 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 swears and oaths I should say is the obligation that everything that comes out of your mouth you shall do in so many words keep your word even if it's not a vow even if it's not an oath you have to keep your word if you say you're going to do something you have to do it 
And if you don't, not only is your reputation going to get hurt, not only is your word going to be considered useless and immaterial, but worse of all, there is a judgment in heaven that's awaiting such people that do not have word. Why? Because the one of the greatest blessings that HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave us is the ability to speak. And the Kafa Chaim asks, speaking is a very big thing. That's how we pray to Hashem. That's how we, you know, we, we learn Torah. That's how we teach Torah. It's a very big thing. Why is it that we don't have a special blessing that we do in the morning for speaking? We have a blessing in the morning for waking up. We have a blessing in the morning for being able to see, you know, that he, uh, that he, uh, he, uh, he bring, gives vision to the blind. He, we have a uh, blessing for those, you know, for being able to stand. How come we don't have a blessing for speaking, which is even more valuable than the rest of those? The Kafa Chaim says, really, the truth is we do. We do have a blessing for it. It's inside the blessing where we thank Hashem for giving us a neshama that distinguishes us from the animals. Why? Because animals can't speak. Humans can. So inside that blessing is the gratitude to Hashem for giving us the ability to speak. Hence the reason why a person that speaks lies, a person that speaks heresy, a person that speaks idolatry, a person that speaks slander, is not only using the greatest tool that a Kadosh Baruch who gave a human being, needless to say a Jew, not only is he misusing it, not only is he disrespecting it, but he's actually using it for the opposite reasons of what it's supposed to be used for. So Moshe Rabbeinu tells Am Yisrael, whatever will come out of his mouth he shall do now when it comes to vows a woman has slightly different laws than a man here why because a woman if she's still in her father's house she's a little girl she's unmarried obviously no none of this boyfriend girlfriend nonsense that's in the world today then her father is responsible for her. And if even if she makes a vow, he can nullify it under certain conditions. If she is married, she's in essence, she was bought by her husband in the ketubah, the Jewish ceremony of a man marrying a woman is a purchase. Not like slavery purchase, like demented people think, but rather a purchase where in return for her marrying him, he is promising her to give her sustenance, to put, uh, you know, give her a roof over her head, to give her a place to live, give her a, uh, a clothing, and also to uh, intimacy whenever she wants. Now, as far as the, as long as it doesn't violate the Torah, which when she's Nida and so on. Now, many times people think that oh as long as a uh, you know i'm not married then anytime i make a vow i could just ask my father to cancel it it doesn't work that way 
The law is, the Gemara in Masechet Nedarim, page 45b, says, if the girl is under 11 years old and she makes a vow, we don't consider it. Why? She's too little to really understand what a neder really is. If she's 11 years old until 12 years old, then we examine whatever neder she meant. We examine it to see if she really understands the ramifications of what she said. And if she does understand, then the neder holds, the vow holds, unless her, her father cancels it. If she is 12 years old, until 12 and a half, the nether is accepted without examination. She makes a nether, it's accepted, we don't need to examine anything. Whether she understands, doesn't understand, why? Because right now she's already considered a woman. And at 12 and a half, she's already considered an adult. And the Chachamim say, at 12 and a half, her father can no longer cancel her nedel. Why? She's a woman. Now, of course, in the world today, you're a, uh, if you're living in the uh, Jewish world, few people consider a 12-year-old girl a woman. Allah does. But women generally get married much older these days. 18, 19, 20 older unfortunately but nonetheless that's the way the world is in a secular world it's much worse why they tell you that the 12 year old is still a child and cannot get married but she could have a boyfriend and act like she's married she could even have the boyfriend sleep at the house and make sins together and both go to gain home with the parents but she's not allowed to get married though how that makes sense to people, I'm not really sure. But nonetheless, this is the way of the world of when it's opposite of Torah. Now, further, the Torah says that which type of vows does a woman that's married able to cancel by our, you know, her husband hears that she made a vow. And he says, no, no, I'm going to annul it. I'm going to cancel it. Onkelos explains any vow and any oath of prohibition that serves to cause this married woman a personal affliction. She herself is going to suffer as a result of it. Her husband may let it stand or he may cancel it. He may annul it. But he cannot annul a vow which does not cause his wife personal affliction. And if he's going to annul it, he has to do it the first time that he hears it. He can't wait, like, you know, to see what happens with it a week, two weeks later. Oh, she can't do it. Okay, I'm going to cancel it. It doesn't work that way. Now, as Rav Nisimi again said, and many Chachamim said, making vows is not small it's, it's a big deal. Don't do it just because. But sometimes a person is left with no choice. Where something happened and they're being asked to make a vow. There's a story that was sent to me, an extraordinary story 
where a woman is interviewed about something that happened to her and her family nine years ago. And this woman says that she, you know, seen it was a firm woman and uh, kept basics of Torah and mitzvot. And one day she stepped out of the house to for a moment. And as soon as she came back inside, she was hearing screaming and a thump right outside. She ran upstairs and she saw that the window to our kid, a small little kid's room, was completely open. The part that's supposed to keep out any, uh, you know, the, the, the net was not there anymore. And she realized that her son, her little baby son, just fell out of the second story window. When he heard his friend calling him out from the outside, he went to go see him through the window, he put his hands on the window, and he fell out of the window. He's screaming, there's blood everywhere. Hatsala is called, 911 is called, they're going to the hospital. Of course, everyone is in shambles. Emotionally, spiritually, the doctors quickly report in the ICU that he has major brain hemorrhage, blood everywhere. He's going to need a surgery. But even then, there's no guarantee of survival and there's no guarantee of even if he survives, what will be. She calls some people that she's close to, asking them to daven for her, to pray for her, please pray for my kids, refuah I mean, this is an ason, this is a tragedy. Four-year-old kid falls out of a window, second story, doesn't really get worse than that. One of the people she spoke to says to her, I have a Rabbi Netanelli on the phone and he wants to speak to you. I told him about what happened and he's on the phone. And she translated between them because Rabbi Netanelli, he doesn't speak English apparently, he speaks Farsi and he speaks Hebrew. Tomit Chacham, Rabbi Tzach Yosef, spoke very highly of him and uh, says that he's uh, you know one of the uh, tzaddikim that's uh, holding Los Angeles together now he wasn't really very famous in the American world until recently but he's been here for a while in the world of Talmud Chachamim there are a few people to say that you know that know him well and know him that he's a big Talmud Chacham Anyway, Rabbi Tanelli is on the phone and he tells her, after taking her name and saying he's going to pray for her, he tells her, listen, your son fell out of the window. They want to do a surgery. Survival, using the natural laws, even if it happens, doesn't look so good. There's a deal you can make. Promise, meaning make a vow that from now on, 
you're going to cover your hair with a mitpachat, with a scarf. Not with a wig, but with a scarf. And the measure for measure judgment from heaven will be just like you covered your head and were properly modest according to all uh, 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 opinions, HaKadosh Baruch Hu will cover all this pain that your son has in his head and fix it. Now the Yetzirah was so big that even then she had to think about it for a moment. Why? Because still the Yetzirah doesn't leave just because you had a problem. She spoke to her husband for a few minutes. They said, listen, whatever. Put mitpachat, put a scarf, put a tank on her head. What does she care? It's either her son's life or put a scarf on her head. But the big thing here is that she didn't just put the scarf. She believed it's going to work. Because these things don't work if you don't believe. In fact, the Rambam writes, and when he talks about the laws of, of Yom Kippur, that if a person prays to HaKadosh Baruch Hu on Yom Kippur, but he doesn't believe that Hashem is going to forgive him, then Hashem doesn't forgive him. If he doesn't believe in tshuva, Hashem doesn't forgive. You have to believe. Many times people say, oh, can I go to the rabbi such and such and get a blessing? Oh, rabbi, can you give me a blessing? And then they get disappointed when the rabbi says, okay, listen, I'm more than happy to give you a blessing, but you have to take something on. You have to keep Shabbat. You have to keep Tarat Mishpacha. You have to uh, be modest. Many times say you have to give tzedakah. They think, oh yeah, the rabbi wants money. No, no, it's not that. You're not understanding. The rabbi, as great of a tzaddik as he he is, his blessing could just take you so far. That blessing needs fuel. What's the fuel? You taking on a mitzvah. When you take on a big mitzvah, that gives the blessing of the rabbi fuel to get first-class treatment in the bed dean of Shemaim. You don't take a mitzvah on, you're relying completely on the power of the blessing. More times than not, those blessings are not even going to reach the ceiling. Why? Because again, a Kadosh Baruch Hu has many people praying to him every single minute. You want something supernatural, but you're not even willing to take on what you're obligated to do. Why should Hashem do something supernatural for you? So Rabbi Netanelli, and as I've learned from Rabbi Ephraim, each time somebody asks for a blessing, always tell them, take something on. More learning Torah, more tzedakah, more tzniyut, more. Why? Because the blessing needs fuel. Rabbi Netanelli tells this woman, you have to take on Kisui Rosh. She says, fine. She says, the moment they decided... They came back, they're in the hospital, the doctors came back into the room. Literally, this is a matter of moments. This is not like five years later. A matter of moments. Before the conversation, the doctor said, we need a surgery, we're not even sure how it's going to come out. After the conversation, the doctors come back, completely baffled. A miracle just happened. The bleeding stopped, he no longer needs a surgery. Within several days, the kid was back home. Now, of course, everyone would love to just say, oh yeah, the tzaddik, Rabbi Netanelli, he's the one that blessed, you're right, he blessed. But if it wasn't for the woman taking on a serious mitzvah, it wouldn't have worked. Years later, 
some of our secular family members told her, listen, the kid's healthy now. Why don't you uh, take off the scarf? And the Yetzirah told her, listen, why don't you ask the rabbi if you could take off the, uh, the scarf and put on a wig? Still covering your hair, according to some opinions. She called the rabbi and the rabbi says, no, no, no. It doesn't work that way. Once you make a vow, it's not, oh, I, uh, I don't need it anymore. Because even a vow, like we're talking about until now, could be canceled that day. But a vow like this can never be canceled. Why? This is a vow that you made under extraordinary conditions. This vow is never cancelable. No one in the world can cancel this vow. And that's one of the things that a lot of people don't understand. They make a vow to Hashem. Hashem, if you save me here, I'm going to do such and such. And Hashem gives them what they want. And then some time passes and they figure, okay, so I got what I want. Hashem got at least part of what I told him I'm going to give him. That's enough, right? And then tragedy strikes. Why? Because that vow is not cancelable. If you make a vow under extraordinary conditions, you can never cancel that vow. Now, another example that was given was by another guy who said that his son was showing major symptoms of obsessive compulsive behavior where he started to repeat everything twice, go into room twice, ask questions twice, everything. And they got worried. They spoke to Rabbi Netanelli, and Rabbi Netanelli told the father, take on the mitzvah of, which is an obligation from, from the Shulchan Aruch. There's an obligation for every Jew to read the weekly parasha twice and once with commentary. So in essence, three times. So against the twice that you read the parasha, Hashem is going to fix the twice that your son is doing everything. The guy testified in a video. As soon as I started doing it, it had an immediate impact on my kid. The kid stopped as if the obsessive compulsive behavior disappeared. Now again, as righteous as Rabbi Netanelli is, if it wasn't for the mitzvah, it wouldn't have worked. Why? The tzaddikim, they're great. But HaKadosh Baruch Hu is not sending them into the world to simply absolve people of their responsibilities. Rather to strengthen people. So if somebody takes something on, they can get blessings that work. You're not willing to take something on? Then suit yourself. The guy took on a year passed. He's not missing a day. He went on a business trip. He forgot his books at home. A few days, he's in a business trip. His wife calls him in a panic. You're never going to believe it. The obsessive compulsive behavior is back. As if nothing changed. The guy wakes up and realizes, oh, I forgot my books. He went back. He got the books. He says, I haven't missed a day since. 
the kid's back to normal meaning good why you made a vow you made a vow to Hashem Hashem gave what you wanted now it's important for a person to know that sometimes it'll seem like the rabbis are harsh because they're telling you to do something what you're not realizing is that they know everything I just mentioned to you and much more which is again if you don't take something on the blessing won't work more times than not it won't work at all there was a few times where Baruch Hashem people got blessings from us and they worked and unfortunately a few times they didn't work one time there was a rich man that uh, contacted me and told me that one of his family members is in major danger I told him fine you could do big mitzvot Hashem gave you wealth he said okay so can I just send a hundred dollars I told him no don't send anything at all you could send it to anybody else you want don't send it to me but you have to send a lot more than a hundred dollars why does it have to be money I said okay fine don't give anything his family member died another time not too long ago somebody contacted me and said listen we want a blessing we know that people that do Kiruv they have a special place in Shemaim higher than anybody else some blessings you've given in the past worked so we want a blessing I said okay this person has to do certain mitzvot they have to keep Shabbat they have to eat kosher no 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 that's too much for them I said too much for them don't waste your time no can we just give a few hundred dollars I said no it doesn't work that way I don't 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 give anything don't give any money I'm not this is not this is not a grocery store you want a blessing to work you have to make a deal with Hashem has many stories in his books and his lectures of how he literally would make contracts with people something that most likely we're going to start doing as well more than what we've done in the past people that are in dire situations but are willing to be serious and take things on person would come to them with would come to him with major sicknesses major problems he'd write a contract for them say okay from now on you're gonna keep Shabbat keep Talat Mishpacha protect your breed whatever the issue was you do all of this you have salvation they signed the deal once after another it works miracles upon miracles we've seen many miracles but the common denominator about all of the blessings that worked is that people did what they said they were going to do just yesterday a man that I know for years already told me that the blessing worked for many years I think maybe something like 10 years they were trying to have a kid nothing worked a few months ago he told me about it I gave him a blessing and yesterday he told me that his wife is a few months pregnant 10 years one blessing but the blessing wasn't just because the words rather the words meant something because they were connected to something that would give it fuel many times people are so glued 
and addicted to the fuel, addicted to their money, addicted to their lifestyle, addicted to their lies, that they're not willing to give it up. And therefore it doesn't work. Now sometimes you're going to have people like this poor woman's family that is secular and try to tell her to take off the mitpachat and be a, uh, you know, without a uh, head covering that's appropriate according to Allah. And uh, well, of course, she withstood the test. Not everybody does. Not everybody does. And this parasha tells us, what does Hashem think of that? In Parashat Balak, at the end of the parasha, Bilam gave Balak the advice to send all of the young women to make the Jewish people sin with them. In Parashat Pinchas, Hashem gave Pinchas a blessing for killing Zimri, the head of the Shimon tribe, and the non-Jewish woman, Cosby, that he was sinning with. And that stopped the plague. In this week's parasha, Am Yisrael is commanded to go to war against the Midianites. And is commanded to destroy them. Unlike all of the other nations that we fought, here Hashem says you have to kill them. Not just hurt them. Eliminate them from the world. And when the Jewish people win this war, they come back, but they're bringing a bunch of women and children with them. And Moshe Rabbeinu is furious at them. How did you bring these women? The Chachamim explain that the soldiers were tzaddikim. They weren't allowed to go to war if they weren't tzaddikim. If somebody even spoke between putting on his tefillin of the arm and the head, they wouldn't be allowed to go to war. All of the soldiers of Moshe Rabbeinu were tzaddikim, were righteous people, didn't even make small sins. They all did tshuva from the big sins they made in the past, whatever it was. They were tzaddikim or else they were not allowed to go to war. Hence the reason why not a single one of them got died. Now even in a fist fight, people get, get hurt. Here you have a full-blown war, not a single Jew died. But they come back with a bunch of women and kids. Moshe Rabbeinu says, although traditionally you don't kill the women and kids, in this particular case, the laws are different. Why? Because these women, some of them, are considered harlots, are considered prostitutes, zonot, because they caused Amisrael to sin with them. And the righteous soldier says, yeah, but we figured that they only sinned with them because the men told them to do it, so they were like forced into it. Moshe Rabbeinu says, no, I have prophecy. They weren't forced into it. They wanted to destroy Am Israel. Hence the reason why Cosby called herself, she's called Cosby. Not because that was her real name, 
but rather because that's the nickname that the Torah gave her, as she said, destroy Am Yisrael through me. So these women, Moshe Rabbeinu says, that sinned with Am Yisrael, they've lost their right to exist. The only ones that are allowed to survive are the ones that are never been with the men. Little girls. Now, from there we see what Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai says. Gadola Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai says, someone that causes another Jew to sin is worse than a murderer because that's how the Torah treats him. A murderer gets a certain punishment. But someone that causes other people to sin, there's literally no end to their suffering as they go into the seventh level of Gehenom and never come out. And the people of Midian, unlike all of the other enemies of the Jewish people, we were obligated to remove them from the world. Why? Because they caused Am Yisrael to sin. And unlike all of the other nations where we, the women and kids survived, in this case, it was different. Different laws. Because they caused Am Yisrael to sin, and therefore it was a war of vengeance. Vengeance, not for the sake of Hashem. Vengeance for the sake of all of the Jews that have now have sins on their neshama because of these people. Now, at the end of the parasha, it says that these tzaddikim soldiers came to Moshe Rabbeinu and brought a big treasure to thank Hashem. To thank Hashem that not a single one of them died. Rashi says, that not only there was no casualties, but as the Gemara in Masechet Shabbat says, that they were thanking Hashem that they all withstood the test, that not a single one of them sinned with immorality. When did they? When would they possibly sin with immorality? The Targum Yonatan Ben Uziel says these tzaddikim soldiers withstood the test similar to Yosef Tzaddik. Where after they won the war, part of the process of winning the war is collecting the spoils. So they went into all of these houses, and inside these houses are women, the wives of the soldiers they just killed, and their daughters. And many of them are very beautiful, many of them are very rich, full of jewelry, full of gold, full of silver. Yonatan ben Uziel says, the soldiers took off all of the jewelry, all of the gold from these women without sinning once, without even looking at them. How, says Yonatan ben Uziel, can a man that no one is looking at him, no one is telling him what to do, he's after a war, he's got all of this energy, He's got all of this frustration in him. He sees a beautiful woman. Her husband is dead. Her father is dead. How does he not make a sin? 
Yonatan ben Uziel says, the soldiers told Moshe Rabbeinu, when we went there, we didn't sin. That's why we're giving this sacrifice, we're giving all this money. Why? Because Akadosh Baruch Hu gave us special powers at that moment for each and every single one of us, individually, to remember the death of that man over that woman. The death of Zimri over Cosby. And what is happening to him in Gehenna right now? We don't want to go to Gehenna. Hence the reason why we didn't even look at those women. We took the jewelry without even looking at them. From there we learn Rabotai Kalim and what the Chachamim teaches here. Fearing Hashem is not only a good thing, but a necessary thing. But Yonatan ben Uziel says, do the mitzvot after you think about how amazing Hashem is and how He gave you eyes to see and legs to walk and food to eat and all of the wonderful things in life. Do the mitzvot, follow His law because you love Him. But that is not going to stop you from sinning. What will stop you from sinning is fear and trepidation of going against Him and Him putting you in the special places that are designated for punishment. The Gehenim, the Chibuta Kever, the Kafakela, the reincarnations and strange creatures and beings the fear and trepidation of punishment is the only thing that's going to keep you away from those sins. And that's why there is no such thing as serving Hashem with just simply loving Him. Fear is the foundation of connecting to God. This is also the reason why in Parashat Maaseh, when Moshe Rabbeinu is telling Am Yisrael to follow the ways of Hashem. At the end of Parashat Matot, Moshe Rabbeinu tells Reuven and Gad that they have to make sure that they're going to deliver on their promise and help their brethren in the wars that's going to happen in the land of Israel. Because if they don't, they're going to get punished for it. But Moshe Rabbeinu constantly says, you have to follow Hashem. Onkelos of every single time where it says follow Hashem, Onkelos says, follow the way of fear of Hashem. Follow the way of fear of Hashem. Why? Following Hashem makes a person think things that are incorrect and heretical which is Hashem is a human being Hashem is someone that you can follow physically Hashem you could agree or disagree with no no follow Hashem means follow fear of Hashem follow the way of fear of Hashem where if your decisions in life always take into consideration fear of the Almighty you're gonna make the wrong the, the right decisions and the wrong decisions will simply be obvious to you 
Now, Parashat Matot is full of these beautiful pearls. Parashat Maaseh continues to build upon them. And one of the main things that connects the two is, as I said earlier, you have a extraordinary language within that you can learn within the Torah itself, where HaKadosh Baruch Hu uses the same link language over and over again throughout the Torah in order to make sure that we realize that everything is connected. And here, HaKadosh Baruch Hu repeats again at the end of Parashat Maaseh, everything that you say, do. Now this is not only when it comes to doing the mitzvot that all of Am Yisrael vowed that they're going to do at Mount Sinai, as the Gemara in Masechet Shabbat says that when Am Yisrael was at Mount Sinai, they were under the mountain. At the time of Hashem speaking to them, the revelation and Him giving them the Torah, why under the mountain is what the verse says. Because Hashem picked up the mountain in the air and He said to Am Yisrael, if you accept the Torah, this mountain is like our chupa. The Jewish marriage ceremony has a chupa. This would be like the cover. And this will be a happy day. If not, you reject the Torah, I'm dropping the mountain and everybody dies. The Mepharshim say, what is it? Is this a wedding or is this a threat? He said, no, no, no. This is a wedding. It's not a threat. He's promising them that if they accept it to everything is good. The fact that he's telling them they'll die if they don't accept it, that's because he's God. What did you think we have, the Mepharshim say? An irresponsible God that is just gonna make the entire world disappear just because his nation is stubborn and doesn't want to accept the Torah? No, because if they don't accept the Torah, he has to destroy the whole world. Because that's the deal that he made with creation itself when he created the world. On the sixth day, he himself said, If Am Israel accepted Torah, the world will continue to exist. They reject it, the world will come back to tovavo, to nothingness. So in so many words, HaKadosh Baruch Hu told us, here is the vow, here is the marriage. So when you hear in a shiur that you have to keep Shabbat, that you have to say the morning blessings, that you have to eat kosher food, that you have to follow all of these laws that perhaps you didn't grow up with, or perhaps you heard different. This is not putting some responsibility on you that you never knew about and you're not really at fault that you didn't do. No, no, you agreed to this. You may not remember it, but you agreed to this and you're obligated to do it. The good news is that once you do it, you realize how good it is for you. Now, HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, you have to treat 
the rest of your life the same way as the deal that you have with me. You vow that you're going to keep my Torah. I'm going to hold you to it. You keep it, you'll get rewarded. You violate it, you get punished. But part of that observance of a Torah is to also how you treat the world around you. If you're in business, if you say something, do it. If you promise something, deliver. If you want to say something, make sure that whatever you're saying is the truth. Don't just speak out into the air and hope that you don't get caught. Because everything that you say is being written in a book and is going to be shown to you. And you're either going to get paid for it as a reward or pay for it as the opposite. Bezat Hashem, each and every single one of us will have a lot more to get paid for rather than to pay for. Lastly, I'll tell you this. Rav Yagin was full of stories. And one of the ways that people see how serious Hashem is about the promise that we made several thousand years ago at Mount Sinai is when people are reminded of this promise. In Rabbi Gen's Majesty of Shabbat Sefil, is a story of a woman who grew up religious, but went off the derech. Years of not doing mitzvot, living a secular life, got married, does whatever she wants. One day, her safta, her grandmother, who she was very close to when she was alive, comes to her in a dream. And she says to her, Sarah Leh, that was uh, the girl's name, the woman's name was Sarah. She says, Sarah Leh, what she called her when she was a little kid, when she was still alive. Her grandmother says to her, Sarah Leh, your next door neighbor, they have a little girl that's very sick. She's eight years old. And the doctors say she's going to die in the next few weeks. Go to your neighbor, knock on their door, and tell them that if they keep Shabbat, their daughter will heal. They keep Shabbat, do tshuva. The daughter will heal. And then she woke up. She was a little shocked at the dream. But she ignored it. She said, I'm going to go to this neighbor. I don't even know who they are. I don't know if they have really a sick daughter. And how can I tell them to go keep Shabbat if I myself don't keep Shabbat? So she ignored the dream. The next day, she had a dream again. Asafta came. said, Sarale. I told you to go to your neighbor. Tell him to keep Shabbat. She woke up from the dream 
and again ignored it. The third night, the Safta came again, but this time she was angry. She said, Sarale, you are responsible for killing that kid if you don't do this. She wakes up. It's the middle of the night. She's losing her mind. She tells her husband, she says, listen, it's three, four o'clock in the morning. What are you going to do now? She says, I have to. Okay, go. She goes next door. She knocks on these people's house at the middle of the night, four o'clock in the morning. They open the door and they said, she says to them, do you have an eight-year-old daughter who's sick? And they look at her and they say, more like dead. She says, what? They said, yeah, the, the doctors said our daughter is as good as dead because there's no cure for her. She can't see. She can't hear. She can't talk. She can't move. And they have no idea why. They released her. She's here in the house. And they said she'll die in the next few days. The woman, Sarale, says to them, I know this sounds strange, but my grandmother was a very religious woman. And she came to me in a dream three nights in a row. And she told me, about your daughter and she said that if you keep Shabbat from now on if you keep Torah and Mitzvot from now on your daughter will be cured initially they looked at her it's the middle of the night the strange secular woman is coming to them telling them about Judaism but then the wife the mother of this little girl says to her husband Listen, we tried everything. We tried doctors. We tried flying everywhere. Everything we tried. Nothing worked. But we tried it anyway. Why not try this too? Let's try to be religious. Let's try to keep Shabbat. What do we have to lose? The husband agreed. They agreed to keep. The doctor said she's going to die in a... A matter of days, maybe two weeks. By the next morning, Sarah opened her eyes. By the next day, she started talking. By the following day, she got out of the bed, asked to eat something. Within the next week, she was already playing outside as if she was never a sick girl. Now, not everyone has such merits to have such dreams and such messengers and such messages. But I can assure you that a miracle is waiting for every single person that's willing to take the vow we made to Hashem seriously. 
You may not get that, you know, that miracle when you want it, but you will get it when you need it. The more serious you are with Hashem, the more Hashem will spoil you with more and more miracles. Baruch Hashem, I can tell you firsthand, I don't need to read these stories to know it's true. I've lived a life full of miracles. Every single day there's something new. Every single day there's a new miracle. Whether it's medical miracles, financial miracles, spiritual miracles. It's as if Mount Sinai is a place we live. Either the miracles are happening to us or to people that are connected to us. The beautiful thing is that we only always know the source of these miracles. It's not us. It's always Akadosh Baruch Hu. We're simply the ones that tell people what you need to do if you want a miracle. It all begins with keep your word because Akadosh Baruch Hu keeps his. With that being said, I'm going to take a quick drink and you guys can ask some questions. Is eating kosher just for Jews or for everyone? Uh, the obligation to eat kosher food is only for the Jews, but the non-Jews are per, you know, perfectly allowed to eat kosher food. They don't have to. The one uh, uh, law for, uh, for non-Jews uh, about food is that they make, have to make sure that they have to eat their animals after they're dead. Now, I know in the uh, most of the Western society, this sounds like a strange law. Like, why is there even a law to eat the animals uh, dead? I mean, of course we eat the animals dead. Who eats a living chicken? Who eats a living cow? Well, that's because you live in America. And in America, in most of America, uh, this is the standard. But uh, the truth is, is that in different parts of America, and certainly in different parts of the world, uh, there are many people that eat animals uh, that are alive. There is a, uh, a huge uh, custom in Asia where they eat uh, the monkey uh, while it's alive and after they sedate him, they put him in the middle of the table, they cut off his skull and then they eat his brain while the monkey is alive. Uh, the same concept that happens in, uh, in China where they, uh, the way that they, uh, you know, eat and torture some of these animals some of them literally cut off the limbs of the animals while they're alive so you may not be familiar with uh, some of the things that are happening in the world but I can tell you that every day when uh, when a Jewish person says the, the morning blessings they uh, they don't realize perhaps how much they have to thank Hashem for giving us the Torah uh, because what distinguishes us from the nations is not uh, anything else aside from the Torah. If a Jew observes the Torah, then there's a huge difference between him and the Gentiles. If a Jew doesn't keep the Torah, then the difference between him and the Gentile is nothing. And in fact, uh, he could be worse than the Gentiles and usually is worse than the Gentiles. As it says, your conquerors, your, uh, your destroyers will be from among you, meaning that we are our own worst enemy. When we observe the Torah, there's a uh, clear difference between the Jewish people and the Gentiles. 
and, and as far as when we're not observing the Torah, there's the difference, but the difference is in a negative way. Uh, that's the reason why some of the uh, big tragedies, that uh, the biggest tragedies that happened to the Jewish people weren't necessarily uh, spearheaded by the Gentiles. Many times there were Jews involved, uh, whether it's a, uh, during the uh, destruction of the Bet HaMikdash, uh, you know, you have the, uh, the wars against the Greeks. The Greeks, some of them, uh, were Jews. Uh, so it wasn't just uh, Gentiles. The Gemara talks about how there was a uh, Jewish woman that was married to one of the uh, leaders of the, uh, the Gentiles that were destroying the Bet HaMikdash. So it's a, uh, and she uh, kicked the, uh, the, the, the Mishkan saying, wolf, wolf, when are you going to uh, help your children? In so many words, making fun of the Mishkan that's eating, that's, uh, that took all of these korbanot. And of course, this woman got punished uh, severely. Uh, but the point being is, is that the, uh, some of the enemies of the Jewish people, uh, that were the biggest enemies, were Jews. Uh, as I've told you guys uh, multiple times, there's a Midrash that talks about Nebuchadnezzar. Even though he was the king of Babel, he was one of the uh, grandkids of Shlomo HaMelech, meaning he was a Jew. Uh, he was a Jew, and uh, some even say he was the son of Shlomo HaMelech. That was Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, the, uh, the Nazi army uh, that uh, you know, murdered six million Jews uh, also had 150,000 Jewish soldiers. The, uh, the, the Zionists that say that they love Jews are some of the biggest enemies of the Jewish people throughout all of history, uh, including today. Uh, the, uh, the solution that for anti-Semitism that uh, Herzl, Imach Shimo, uh, had, Theodor Herzl, he's viewed by some people erroneously as a righteous person, but he's actually one of the most wicked Jews that ever existed. His solution for anti-Semitism was to convert all the Jews to idolatry, to Christianity. That was his solution. That's what he wrote himself in the journal, in his own journal. That's why he uh, did not circumcise his son, Hans. And in fact, his own son said and testified that his father, Herzl, would have a Christmas tree in his house every year, celebrating the Christian holidays. He had no connection whatsoever to Judaism. He hated Judaism. And many of the Zionists hated Judaism, and many of the Zionists did things that uh, are no, uh, no less terrible to the Jewish people uh, than, uh, you know, than what the Nazis did. Uh, certainly there were uh, Jews that uh, were uh, behind the communism that caused destruction in the world uh, before World War II and, uh, and after uh, you know, the, the, uh, the, the Karl Marxes of the world. Uh, these were all Jews. So the hatred that the gentiles have against the jews it's not against the religious righteous jews it's against the zionists that gave us a bad name the problem is that when they when the gentiles fight us whether it's the nazis or it's the arabs or it's anybody else they don't you know even though they hate us because of the bad people among us they want to kill all of us regardless they don't uh, decipher between good and bad Religious or not religious. That's just the reality. So that's because Hashem uses them as a stick. That's how Hashem uses the Gentiles. Uses them as a stick to wake up his kids to do tshuva. If we do tshuva and we repent for our sins and we start following what we vowed to follow at Mount Sinai 3,334 years ago, 
then HaKadosh Baruch Hu will protect us and no one can hurt us. If we don't do tshuva, then unfortunately the disasters that we've had in every generation will unfortunately continue until uh, the ultimate disaster uh, of, a, uh, of what happens when Mashiach comes and uh, many people are not going to survive it because they haven't done tshuva. That's the reason why the prophet Zechariah in chapter 14 and also the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 38 talk about the end of the world being a major war where two-thirds of the world is annihilated and among them are Jewish people. So it's not just bad Gentiles that are going to be destroyed. There's going to be many Jews that get destroyed. In fact, the, uh, some of the biggest enemies of the Mashiach himself are going to be wicked Jews. So it's important for a person to know that what distinguishes us from the Gentiles is our Torah. If we follow it, certainly the world was created for us. If we don't, we're destroying the world. And in fact, at the time of David Melech, there was a plague. There was a major plague that a hundred people or more would die every day. A hundred people, actually. A hundred people exactly would die every day. And David Melech with Ruach HaKodesh understood that since it's exactly the same number every day, a hundred people a day, I mean, this is obviously no small numbers. It's not a hundred people getting sick, a hundred people dying every day. He knew that this hundred has significance. And with Ruach HaKodesh, he realized that although Moshe Rabbeinu instituted the uh, obligation on Am Yisrael that we have to make 100 blessings per day, there wasn't a structure, like a sidul like we have today, where people simply knew they had to make 100 blessings per day, but they were open to do it whenever they want. They could do a morning blessing, a private blessing, an evening blessing, a food blessing, going to, you know, after you relieve yourself, blessing, whatever you want, you do whenever you want. As long as you get to at least 100 blessings a day. David HaMelech knew that people, since they didn't have structure, they didn't have these blessings done. And he instituted a law that everyone must take this on, take on these 100 blessings. And they have to have structure. Later on, even further structure came in from Anshek Neset Agdolad, the men of the Great Assembly. Among them were prophets and other people that were righteous, that Ruach HaKodesh, where they structured our Sidul with all of the specific morning blessings and Na'amida. All of the blessings that we have weren't just made out of opinions. They all came with divine uh, uh, inspiration and prophecy. But as soon as David Melech instituted this practice of doing a hundred blessings per day the plague stopped on, on, on the spot the plague stopped on, on the spot one of those blessings is thanking Hashem that he didn't make you a non-jew not because you are naturally better than the non-jew no the opposite the non-jew is physically stronger than most Jews the non-jew has more ability to do certain things but if you follow the Torah then the laws of the natural world don't apply to you. Why? Miracles, divine inspiration, Ruach HaKodesh, all of that stuff comes with the Torah. And when a Jew follows the Torah, they're distinguishing themselves from the non-Jews in such a fashion that it was worth it for Hashem to create the world just for that one Jew. When the Jew does not follow the Torah, usually they do things that are worse to the world and to the people around them than even non-Jews. So this is the thing that a person thanks Hashem, thank you, thank you for making me a Jew. 
we say it by thanking you for not making me a non-jew not because the, all the non-jews are bad but rather because if i'm thanking hashem for this position that he put me in the world that means that i'm thanking hashem for the torah that he allowed me to distinguish myself with and of course judaism has an open door policy anyone that wants to convert and be a jew is welcome to do it you're welcome to convert to judaism you go to a orthodox bedin follow the laws make the certain uh, life changes you need to make and over a period of time after you go to a process you'll convert and be a jew but the key is to understand is that what makes a jew the jew that hashem wants in the world is if he follows the torah if she follows the torah if they don't unfortunately the uh, a lot of the bad things that uh, people say about jews are about those people that don't follow the torah okay next question Yosef is asking, why do we have to eat kosher? So, Akadosh Baruch Hu gave us a responsibility in the world. And the Torah says, in order for you to, to fulfill that responsibility in the world, you have to make sure that you understand the Torah when you read it. The Torah says, there are laws. There are laws of how to have a family laws of how to raise children laws of how to learn Torah laws for eating and Hashem says that the Jewish people since they have to learn the Torah and understand it completely in order to follow it they have to have a different food diet they have to eat only animals that are considered pure because they have these two signs where if it's an animal it has to have split hooves and choose its cud and if it's a fish it has to have fins and scales and if it's a bird it's not the predatory birds also doesn't have that uh, uh extra uh leg or, or a finger on the side whatever so the point is that the common denominator among all of the fish and the animals and the birds that the jewish people eat are allowed to eat is that they're all docile animals meaning they're not predators they don't kill other animals they're not vicious they're not aggressive and this is one of the things that is also a distinguishing factor between the Jews and the non-Jews. If you look at the righteous Jews throughout history, the, whether it's now or then, you're always going to see gentle people. You're going to see people that are very calm. You're going to see people that are very patient. You're going to see people that are not vicious. They're not uh, predators. They're not looking to fight. And even when they fight, usually they're trying to minimize the damage because they don't want to hurt the other party so the fights that the jewish people have have always been for survival not for the sake of uh, of uh, of just simply conquering more land now that's because the food that we eat turns into blood whatever we eat turns into blood so in essence whatever food you eat turns into you because the blood is you so the cow or the uh, lamb or the uh, uh, the uh, chicken or uh, you know or all of the uh, you know the, the different kosher fish they're all relatively uh, 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 docile animals they're not aggressive animals and that in essence means that the blood that they turn into is also not aggressive also not going to be hurting other people and, and causing trouble for other people so that's one part of it as far as helping us 
fulfilled the obligation of being good people as far as behavior. The second thing is, Hashem says that when we eat the non-kosher food, the food of, let's say, animals like a pig, that's a disgusting animal, it's also very aggressive, uh, the food of, uh, of animals that are, uh, you know, like alligators, that are predators, and all types of animals that are predators, that turns into blood too and makes us aggressive, makes us want to hurt people, makes us more violent. As you see, the violence in the world today, unfortunately, is a, uh, is, 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 you see it much more apparently in the non-Jewish world than in the Jewish world. You know, as much as the uh, Palestinians want to complain about the Jews, if you compare the behavior of the two people, you'll see a world of difference. What they do to their own people. Needless to say, what they do to us, terrorism, the attacks, uh, the, uh, the, the kidnappings, the murders, you're never going to find a, uh, you know, a, a group of Jewish people just decide to go and, uh, you know, and, and cause all types of harm to a bunch of Palestinian people. It just doesn't happen. Now, as much as the news hates and the media hates the Jewish people, the terrorist attacks, it's always coming from the Palestinian side. There is no Jewish terrorists. There's no Jewish terrorism group. It just doesn't exist. And even when we fight them, even one of the uh, uh, major generals from England, he went to a uh, UN meeting saying that he has been in the army, he's been a fighter his whole life, and he has never seen a more merciful uh, uh, country and more merciful people and more merciful army than the Jewish people. He says it's the only army in the world that before they respond to a terrorist attack, respond to a missile attack, respond to defend themselves, they send a bunch of messages to the locals to warn them to leave their houses because there's going to be bombings there. Before they send the bombs, they warn the people, leave, leave, so you don't die. So we could just destroy houses instead. He says, I've never seen such a thing. When England attacks anybody, they don't warn them. When America attacks anybody, they don't warn them. Nobody warns anybody except the Jewish people. And this is literally a testimony from a non-Jew from, from England. He came to, went to the UN. It's a famous speech. I'm sure you can find it on the internet. The point is, is that the biggest part of the Jewish distinguishing factor is that we are merciful people. And that's because of the food we eat. The other thing is also is that Hashem said when we eat non-kosher food not only do we become aggressive but also the Torah says that we become tameh that the non-kosher animal has an impact on the Jewish people different than the non-Jewish people where when we eat non-kosher food all of a sudden we can no longer understand the Torah. The non-Jew could eat a pig with no problem and he could still understand to his capacity the parts of the Torah. But the Jew, if he eats a pig, he can't understand anything. Everything will seem strange to him. Everything will seem disgusting to him in the Torah. Because non-kosher food destroys the Jewish neshama. So HaKadosh Baruch Hu says in order to protect that Jewish body and that Jewish neshama, you have to eat kosher food. And this is across the board, not just with the food itself, that's meat and fish, 
but even things like cookies and candy, everything that you eat has to be kosher because the ingredients that people use in different uh, products may not seem like it matters that it's kosher or not, but it is. You know, many times people say, oh, how come you can't eat, uh, you know, some candy? It's just candy. It's just sugar. Well, that's not true because many different types of candies have gelatin in them. And gelatin... Is a, is, a, is a product that comes from the bones of pigs. Usually the bones of pigs are the most common because they're the cheapest, but it also comes from the bones of other animals. Obviously, this makes it a non-kosher food. Now, you're going to have jelly candies that are kosher that are also using a similar a gelatin, but the gelatin they use is kosher gelatin. Either it's coming from a, uh, a fish that's a kosher fish, or it's coming from other uh, different uh, byproducts of kosher, uh, of kosher uh, animals or kosher uh, 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 chemicals and so on. But the point is, is that it's, the, if it's not kosher, there's a reason for it. There's a reason for it. Same thing with cakes and pizza and so on. I remember years ago, we uh, published a, uh, like a little uh, booklet showing the different ingredients that you will find in uh, non-kosher food that most people don't realize that is in there. You know, in, in, in the Western world especially, people think that everything that they eat is things that uh, are normal. But they don't realize that many of the different chemicals that are written on the ingredients, if you knew what those ingredients are, you probably wouldn't want to eat that food. You know, it's a, sometimes when it says uh, food coloring like red, or specific types of codes, it's referring to beetles. Other times it uh, has different types of uh, products that are actually coming from the uh, anal canal of a raccoon. Apparently that is a common uh, food product. Uh, there's also a, um, different types of uh, uh, parts of, uh, of animals that most people would never want to eat. That it's used for cheese, that it's used for uh, milk products, dairy products. So it's a, again, if something is not kosher, there's a reason for it. There's a reason for it. And the biggest thing is that a person needs to know is that it's not just the ingredients, but it's also how it's cooked. How it's cooked. One is that if, let's say, for example, a non-kosher pizza, what many people don't realize is that the way that the pizzerias distinguish the flavor of their sauce and their cheese from the pizzeria next door is with what they cook the sauce with, which is usually what kind of meat they cook the sauce with. So it's not just tomatoes that they're cooking with the sauce. They're also cooking meat. Many times that meat is, a, is bacon is a, or, or, or pork, but needless to say, even if it's not pork, even if it's a non-kosher cow, it's still not allowed. So when a person is eating a pizza at a non-kosher pizzeria they're not only eating non-kosher dairy they're also eating non-kosher meat and non-kosher meat together with dairy which is forbidden according to the Torah last but not least the Jews are also obligated to have their utensils purified and uh, this was to a much higher extent at the time of the Bet HaMikdash but it's still an obligation today that anytime you have any type of uh, pots and pans and uh, forks knives these things have to go to uh, cups these things have to go to a mikveh you have to dip them in the mikveh water 
before you use them. Now, to just show you how significant it is and how you know the ignorance could be literally in every house, Arabi Tzchak Yosef, the Rishon Tzion, said in a recent uh, shiul that uh, when they were growing up, you know, their father is Gdolado, is Rabbi Vadia, they obviously their their main focus was learning Torah, following the Torah. But one of the things that they didn't grow up with was knowledge that they had cousins. They didn't have any co- they, they didn't know they had cousins. And the reason why is because although Ravavadya and his brothers grew up religious, his brothers went to the army and uh, they all uh, became non-religious. Later on, they uh, some of them did tshuva, but while they were not religious, Ravavadya never told his kids that they have these cousins. Ravavadya Yosef, Dolado, most people don't even know he had siblings. He had brothers that were not religious Jews in Israel. And Rabbi Tzak Yosef says, we didn't even know they existed. Why? Because my father was afraid that if we went to their houses, we would start acting like them. Not keeping Shabbat, not eating kosher, you know, violating the Torah. So he said, stay away. How to stay away? Simply, they don't know that it exists. But he and my mom, he said, you know, Rav Avadi and his wife would go to their house from time to time when there was different celebrations and so on. And he says, one time, Rav Avadia went to one of his secular brother's house. And uh, his brother offered him, he said, uh, I know you uh, uh, wouldn't eat my food or else I would offer it to you, but at least here's a glass of water. No one could say no to water. And he gives him a cup of water. Ravavadya says to his brother, did you dip this cup in a mikveh? His brother said, I didn't even know that I have to. Then Ravavadya gives him back the cup of water and says, then even this cup of water I can't have. Here we see struggles that I'm sure some of you that are watching had with your family thinking, oh, I grew up in a non-religious family, so it's, uh, it's hard for me with my family because I did tshuva and I changed my life, but they don't understand. The last thing on your mind that you ever thought was that Rabbi Vadi Yosef also had similar family members like yours. And guess what? He dealt with it. He dealt with it. Once some of the family members did tshuva, Rabbi Tzak Yosef says we got to meet them. We learned that they existed. When my father said there's no more danger from being part of our lives. So the kosher food is not just the animal, not just the fish, not just the bird, but also the ingredients, also the utensils, and in fact, even also the place of where you eat it. So kosher food is very, very critical uh, for, for the Jewish people to protect their neshama. Good question. Uh, next question, Sarah is asking, why do we have to be tzanua? So the tzanua means modesty. The Torah in Parashat Kedoshim. HaKadosh Baruch Hu says to Am Yisrael, 
קדושים תהיו כי קדוש אני. You be holy because I am holy. The Ramban and Rashi both on that comment and say, how is Am Yisrael holy? What does it mean to be holy? He says, be holy by being modest. Kol kvuda bat melech pnima, says Shlomo HaMelech. All of the honor of a woman is within, meaning that the more modest a woman is, the more righteous she is, the more Hashem will reward her in this world and the next. And the reason why HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants a woman to be modest is because the more modest she is, the more that means that she is concerned about what Hashem thinks and how she's affecting other people. The Midrash says, Midrash Rabbah says, that uh, when HaKadosh Baruch Hu created Chava, Eve, the wife of, uh, of Adam, as he's creating each part of our body, he says, be modest, be modest. And the reason why he chose the rib as the part of the body of, the, uh, of Adam that he took in order to create Chava is because the rib is the most modest part of the body. It's always covered by the arm. Because the ultimate objective for a woman is to be modest because her beauty affects not just her, it affects people. Now, if she uses the beauty that Hashem gave her in order, in, in a kosher way, where it's only for her husband, and that's, she's using the gift that Hashem gave her in order to serve Hashem. But if she's using the gift of beauty that Hashem gave her only for herself, then she's going to cause other people to sin because they're going to look at her and they're going to think, if she's not sanua, if she's not modest, and they're going to think inappropriate thoughts. And when they think inappropriate thoughts, they're going to do things that are forbidden according to the Torah. They're going to waste seed. They're going to be promiscuous. They're going to think about her when they're with their wife. So, this is what happened to the women of Midian in this week's parasha. Akadosh Baruch Hu says the women of Midian that went around Lotzanua, that went around not modest, because they caused Am Yisrael to sin, they were considered harlots. They were considered the biggest sinners in the world and they lost their right to exist and that's why Moshe Rabbeinu was commanded to tell Am Yisrael that they have to destroy all of them. Because a woman that is not modest is causing other people to sin. Even if she doesn't mean it, she's doing it. She walks around not modest, she's getting people's attention, their mind is going to be on her, they're going to think inappropriate things, and whether she likes it or not, she is benefiting from that attention. No one walks around immodest just because. You know, some people say, yeah, but I'm hot. Yeah, you're hot. What? Amisai wasn't hot in the desert, but yet they wore so much clothes. Your forefathers, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, not 500 years ago or 5,000 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, everyone had clothes completely from head to toe. Everyone was modest. You see old pictures of people going, non-Jews, going to the beach. All of them wore big dresses completely modest what they weren't hot so how come they were able to help handle the heat even though they didn't even have air conditioner and all of a sudden you in the year 2023 according to the gregorian calendar you can't handle the heat 
It's not about heat. It's about attention. Women want the attention they get as a result of not being modest. And that is in itself them benefiting and wanting the sin. Wanting something that's forbidden according to Hashem. So, immodesty is disgusting in the eyes of Hashem because it's Hashem's daughter that is acting like an enemy. Because if something is valuable, let's say, for example, you have a diamond. You have a diamond. If you have a very expensive diamond and it's worth $100 million, now, you're not going to throw that diamond in the air like a ball. You're not going to show that diamond to everybody and people that you don't know and all types of strangers. Why? Because it's a very expensive diamond and you're afraid that someone's going to steal it from you, that someone's going to destroy it, hurt it, do something to it that you don't want done. So what do you do with that expensive diamond? You hide it. You put it in a safe. You put it away from people. You only show it to specific people that are allowed to see it because it's expensive. A woman, and needless to say, a Jewish woman is the daughter of a Kadosh Baruch Hu. That means you are the daughter of the king of kings. That makes you a princess. And if you ask any king that's alive today or was ever alive in history, what would he prefer? His daughter or the diamond? He would always tell you, of course, I prefer my daughter. Now, if you told him, listen, your daughter is very sick, but if you want a cure, you have to give me your diamonds. Every king will give you the diamond. Why? Because he wants his daughter to live. And that's for the king of flesh and blood. Needless to say, the king of kings about his daughter. His daughter is worth a lot more than any diamonds. As Hashem says, Hashem says, minus the money, minus the gold, all the gold and diamonds are mine. I don't need you to give me diamonds. I need you to make sure my daughter is okay, that she's modest, that she's not treated like public property. Now, when a woman treats herself like a diamond that means she's modest she doesn't show herself to everybody she's not a garbage pail that everyone is allowed to touch and look inside she's private property she only has one owner there's no partnerships there's no a uh, window watching there's only one owner there's only one person that benefits from that beauty but if a woman treats herself like a diamond then she understands what it means to be the daughter of god when a woman treats herself like a garbage pail that means that she doesn't mind if everyone looks inside if everyone touches if everyone kicks if everyone hits doesn't care and that's a woman that's not modest that's a woman that's valuing herself not only not like a diamond but like a garbage pail even if she's wearing a diamond ring even if she's wearing a hundred million dollar diamond ring 
she doesn't realize that the way she carries herself, if she's not modest, is that the diamond ring is worth more than her. In fact, she's treating herself like public property. Now, all of the most extraordinary women that you're ever going to meet, that are most established, normal people, not people that got famous because of the way they look, and that's only temporary. People that are established, people of intellect, people that have done good in the world, you're going to see people that are modest. All of the major queens, you're going to see queens that are walking around modest. You're never going to see a queen walking around with no clothes on. Not today, not in the past. Why? Queens and princesses are not public property. You're not just allowed to look at wherever you want. So it's very important for a woman to know that the more modest you are, the more you're treating yourself like the diamond that you are, like the queen that you are. The more you treat yourself, the more you make yourself public property. Unfortunately, the more you are disregarding your father that's the king that's telling you you shouldn't treat yourself like this. Now the question is, can there be 613 generic same mitzvot that both men and women keep the same way? Uh, well, there are 613 mitzvot that HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave us in the Torah. And these mitzvot are, some of them are for men, some of them are for women, some of them are only for the Kohanim, and some of them are only for people that are in the Bet HaMikdash. So it's not just 613 laws that are, uh, uh, you know, that are just there, but rather each law has a purpose. So there are the laws of the Korbanot. The Mishnah in Masechet Psachim talks about how there are different types of Korbanot, the regular korban if you bring it to uh you bring the korban you bring the sacrifice and the the uh, you you after you slaughter the animal you put the uh, cup a bowl under its uh, neck to take the blood and after you take the blood you pour it on the mizbeach now if during that process after you took the blood and you uh poured it somebody that's impure touched the animal Let's say somebody just touched a dead person, touched the animal, and the animal became impure. You don't have to bring another koban. You don't have to bring another sacrifice because the main part of the sacrifice was to take the blood. But if it's a koban Pesach and somebody, the same thing happened, you poured the blood and then somebody impure touched the koban, you have a problem. Why? Because the main part of the Koban Pesach is to eat it. So you have a problem. Now, what happens if everybody is impure, like they went to war with Midian, so everyone killed people, so everybody has impurity on them, and it's time for Pesach? The Mishnah tells you that you're still allowed to do the Koban Pesach, despite the fact that everyone's impure. The point is, is that these laws about Korbanot, Pesach, 
that's only relevant to the people that are involved in there it can't be for everybody because not everybody's part of that mitzvah it's only for those people that are involved in that mitzvah now a family purity part of the responsibility is on the husband part of the responsibility is on the wife the husband is not allowed to touch his wife during the time that she's impure the wife can't touch the husband when she's impure but also she has to go to the mikveh after she becomes in order to purify herself if the husband goes to the mikveh instead of the wife nothing changes why because the issue is with the wife so the law here is relevant to the wife and the same thing goes with all of the laws each law pertains to specific people it cannot be for everybody some are only for women some are only for the kohanim some are for 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 the men some are uh, only uh thing that you uh uh do if you have to where let's say for example there's a mitzvah to get married but there's also a mitzvah to get divorced which means to break up a marriage that's hopefully a mitzvah that none of us fulfill ever no one wants to get divorced but it's still a mitzvah if somebody does it because if they're if the husband and wife are not getting along and they hate each other then it's better for them to leave each other and go find somebody else but they have to go through this divorce to give a get so it's a mitzvah if you give the get but hopefully you never get to that point hopefully you love each other forever so again that law is only pertaining to the people that have it, it has anything to do with them now as far as making new laws 613 new laws that is for everybody that we are forbidden from doing because you're not allowed to add or subtract from the Torah you're not allowed to invent new laws that are religious laws you're allowed to have legal laws to run you know to manage the country to manage the law of the land you know financial laws uh you know uh traffic laws and things like that but laws of religion you're not allowed to add because you're not allowed to invent new religions or new laws into Judaism this is the reason why uh another reason why Christianity and and Islam and all of the other religions even uh aside from the idolatry and heresy and all that stuff even the fact that they have these religions is a problem because they invented a new religion not allowed to invent a new religion same thing goes with uh, people that are Noahides non-Jews that are following the Torah but they choose to follow things that they're not allowed to follow like they start keeping Shabbat a non-Jew is not allowed to keep Shabbat why this particular gift was given to the Jews only that's why Shem says this covenant is between me and you you being Am Yisrael not you being the whole world so a Gentile that observes Shabbat is violating the law not observing the law so he is he's violating the law by number one taking on a mitzvah that doesn't belong to him number two he's adding a new he's creating a new religion he's adding new things so we're not allowed to add any new laws we have the Torah the Torah is perfect we don't need to add to it we don't need to subtract from it if we simply follow it we will be much much better off for it
<clears throat> humans are over 200,000 years old uh, it's interesting that people believe the things they uh, read on the internet and the different scientists that keep changing their mind uh, from uh, from uh, one lab to another, but they have a hard time uh, following a Torah that has more evidence to its, not only to its truth, but to its divinity than any other document that ever existed since the beginning of the world. Uh, now, one of the things that people don't understand is that the way that the scientist theorize and estimate the age of anything is by using different uh, estimations whether it's the uh, uh, carbon uh, that they're using or the tree the trees and the amount of uh, circles that are in the trees and all of these different uh, 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 dating methods have been proven to be flawed every single one of them where when they tested these different dating methods they tested let's say for example something that went through uh, uh that's burned so you found a fossil and then you compare it to something that was burned or buried for a long time and went through trauma one thing you know was uh from uh, a couple of years ago and the other one was from uh you know a hundred years ago and the, the lab tells you that both of them are you know fifty thousand years when you know yourself they're not fifty thousand years there is a old documentary called the finger of god uh by a scientist who shows different uh proofs of why the dating methods are flawed but there's a lot of research out there that you can look up to show how the dating methods that they have whether it's the dating methods uh for the world or for uh for different species or anything else it's all uh you know uh, flawed theories uh, and in fact, there's even proof uh, in the DNA uh, that some uh, uh, researcher uh, spoke about in a TED talk that shows that all of mankind came from a single woman and uh, that single woman couldn't be older than 6,000 years. So I, I included this little clip in my videos in the past. Uh, point being is, is that when somebody says that people are 200,000 years old or 2 million years old or or the dinosaurs were 50 million years old, that's just simply an ignorant person that doesn't want to believe anything that is going to obligate them to change. So they simply justify their, you know, their behavior by just you know, making silly statements like that. Can you listen to music? So the, uh, the, the custom now during the three weeks, the period of time between the 17th of Tammuz and Tisha B'Av, 
the Jewish people, it's customary for them not to listen to music during this time of the year. Uh, unless uh, it's uh, children are involved, meaning if it's, let's say, uh, a parent with uh, little kids or a kindergarten teacher has little kids and uh, music is part of the education, then there's a leniency uh, to do that. But uh, for adults to listen to music, uh, you know, at this time, no. Okay, next question. Can if ah, this thing keeps moving. Um, each time you guys make a comment, the thing, uh, the whole question thing moves. Right, let's try again. Uh, let's see. Here we go. Is there any schut for a woman to put the baby onto Eliyahu Navi's chair and give the baby to a sandak? Uh, there's a schut to put uh, for, for a woman to be modest. There's a schut for a woman to bring more children to the world if she's going to raise them with, a, uh, uh, with modesty and to as a priority in their life. To put the baby on a, on a chair, no, there's no schut for that. That uh, The chair for Eliyahu uh, Navi doesn't have to be the fancy chair that you have in the shul. It could also even be a regular chair. And in fact, in the old days, they would actually use a table. Uh, so it's not the chair that they have in many shuls today. It's not, there's no Torah obligation or even rabbinical obligation to have it. It's just customary to do it. But in, in many places, uh, throughout history, they actually would either use regular chairs or even use a table. Uh, now, as far as giving the baby, uh, you know, women should, uh, you know, usually it's ideal as far as modesty is concerned is for her to give it to another woman uh, that is going to give it to her husband uh, or to give it to her husband and he's going to give it to another man, you know, rather than her giving it directly to another man. That's ideal. It's not uh, rather than her giving it to some man that's not her husband. But giving it to her husband is fine, just not a strange man. Uh, what is a child that was born to a Jewish woman who apostated from Judaism considered? Is he a mamzer? Uh, no, a, uh, a child of a, of a Jewish woman is considered a Jew. Now, if this woman uh, was a wicked Jew that did not follow God and his Torah, was a heretic, was an atheist, that doesn't change the status of her children. Uh, they're still Jewish. A mamzer is if she, uh, if that child came from a uh, Jewish woman and a Jewish man, but the, uh, the Jewish woman was married to a different man than the father of the son, meaning she was married to somebody, but she cheated, she committed adultery on her husband, and uh, the, the son came from a different person. That's what makes the, uh, the son of Mamzel, or if it's incest. Uh, that would make the son of Mamzel. But if it's a, uh, if the uh, the child comes from a Jewish woman that doesn't uh, follow the Torah, it's just a regular Jew. It's not a, uh, there's no Mamzel or anything like that. 
Shalom from Australia. Oh, well, Hashem. Good to see you guys. It's a, uh, early in the morning by you guys. It's good. Well, actually, no, it's afternoon by now. Um, when a person is invited to a large meal gathering without assigned places and doesn't know where to sit, where should they sit? If they go to the low end of the table and then are told to move closer to the head, then they have acquired honor in public. If they sit near the head, then they're told to move down and are humiliated. Uh, well, it depends what type of gathering it is. Uh, but uh, usually it's, a, it's best to ask the host, where should you sit? Uh, if they say, oh, sit anywhere, uh, then you tell them, okay, but is this okay? You ask them, is this okay? Is that okay? And then you sit so you could avoid any type of uh, embarrassment or discomfort or anything like that. Uh, usually communication is key with everything in life. Uh, I think one of the biggest uh, reasons for people having problems in their life is they don't know how to communicate. They're shy when they are not supposed to be. They are uh, humble when they're not supposed to be. They're secretive when they're not supposed to be. And they're too talkative when they're not supposed to be. I think if people simply knew how to communicate, uh, many of the problems they deal with would not be there. Uh, what is the significance of the Levites cited? What? what is the significance of the Levite cities being opened? Uh, no, uh, no walls. Uh, well, I mean the, uh, the the cities were gifted to them. They didn't. Uh, they weren't given to them as part of the uh, uh, division of the land. Uh, that uh, each of the uh, other tribes got. So their, their land was unique. Their land was gifted to them by the tribes themselves. Is day trading kosher? Uh, if it's your profession and you're doing it uh, for other people and collecting a fee, uh, then uh, yeah, it's a profession that you can uh, do business with if you're ethical and you're not cheating people and you're not stealing their money and you have some type of strategy, then you can make a living day trading. If you're doing it with your money and you don't actually have a regular job, uh, and, you know, it's a, uh, more times than not, it's simply another form of gambling and uh, it's virtually guaranteed that you're going to end up losing money much more often than you will succeed in making money. But either way, it's a, uh, it's a very consuming endeavor, both financially as well as time and mentally. And I would not recommend for people to day trade. You want to invest, invest long term, you know, buy and, you know, simply uh, look away. But uh, to day trade, buy and sell, it's a, uh, most people don't understand that uh, uh, there, it's a guaranteed loss for 99% of people, including professionals. What does the prohibition of not carrying two weights and measure to eh? what does the prohibition of not carrying two weights and measures together oh this you're talking about uh different parasha it has nothing to do with what we're talking about uh you're talking about parasha where it talks about right before amalek this is referring to uh, being honest in business in those days they had scales uh they still have today when they have when they measure the weight of things uh they uh there were certain weights in the scale and if a person was dishonest, they would have 
a fake weights or weights that are uh, you know that are uh, incorrect in order to make it seem like what they're giving the customers more than what they're giving them or what they're getting is more in so many words to cheat this is still uh in the world today uh today they do it uh both digitally and analog where they cheat with weights and someone that cheats in business rashi says that uh when the jewish people cheat in business we give strength to amalek we give strength to the angel of amalek that in essence uh can take revenge against the people the jewish people what significance importance of bringing kitchen items to the mikveh to be koshered uh, i just explained in the story of rabu vadya is that they uh, this was a something that uh was a torah obligation at the time of Moshe Rabbeinu, uh, where you had to uh, uh, make sure that you uh, only consumed things uh, from uh, pure utensils. And some people took it upon themselves to only eat pure uh, food uh, that had uh, Kodesh uh, on it, a specific type of holy food. So they had to have uh, pure vessels. Today, it's a rabbinical enactment for the utensils uh, to uh, to go to the mikveh, uh, not because the uh, the food is uh, pure, but more because of number one the uh, uh, the tradition that we've had, but also number two because of the issues of milk and meat. Uh, you know where if you have a uh, uh, utensils used for different things and there's no consideration of the difference between them, it's very easy to make a mistake and use both dairy and meat uh for the same utensils but regardless of that uh it's important for a person to uh dip their uh their uh, utensils and everything in a mikveh because that's what we did at the time of the beta mikdash that's what we do in the morning when we wake up that's what the uh, symbolic of what the kohanim and the levim would do before they would serve in the beta mikdash they would wash their hands and their feet all of it is symbolic of what we did at the Bet Mikdash, as well as what we were obligated to do at the time of the Bet Mikdash. Uh, on the topic of kosher, why does fish not require ritual slaughter? Uh, fish is a uh, is is not alive like the uh, uh, like the other uh, animals. Uh, they're uh, they're a different type of being. Uh, so a fish, you just uh, if you either just take it out of the water or you hit it on the head, uh, it's a uh, uh, you can eat it. Uh, in fact, you could uh, uh, fish. You can eat raw. You don't have to uh, uh, remove the blood from it. You can, you're allowed to eat uh, fish blood. Drink fish blood. Whereas the other animals, their blood is their their soul. It's a different type of creature, uh, both spiritually and physically. So you're not allowed to eat the blood of animals. So the slaughter of the animal, uh, part of the reason you have to slaughter the animal is because you have to remove the blood before you uh, you eat it. Whereas the fish, there's no uh, uh, obligation to remove the blood. You can eat the blood if you want. Some people drink the blood of uh, fish as a beverage. I find it disgusting, but again, uh, it's not uh, if it's their mouth and not mine, it doesn't, you know, <laughs> I have no problem. Um, does the prohibition of a man cutting armpit and pubic hair apply to areas where it's common for men to do so? 
Uh, yes, the Shulchan Aruch uh, forbids men from, uh, uh, from cutting uh, the armpit and the pubic hair uh, regardless of what society is doing. Uh, there's no permission to do it. Uh, the only time that there is a leniency is if there is a very serious shlombite problem that's coming from the wife, not from the husband. But even there, you shouldn't rely on a leniency. There's a very stringent uh, uh, language written in the Shulchan Aruch about men that act uh, womanly. Uh, and one of the ways is when they shave their body, especially when uh, they groom those areas. Uh, if a person committed a sin before and he wants to do the same sin again, but it's but is unavoidably prevented from sinning, is the person punished for his intention to sin? Uh, in fact, a, uh, if a person uh, uh, made a uh, vow, made a vow, a woman made a vow, and. Uh, her father or, or husband canceled the vow, but she didn't know. And she violated the vow. Now, in reality, the vow is canceled, but she didn't know it's canceled. She still has to do tshuva and have to bring, a, uh, uh, um, has to repent for, uh, for this. We actually learned from this week's parasha because she was, in essence, intending to violate. And from there we learn, in essence, the answer to your question, where if a person uh, wanted to sin, but he didn't succeed, it's not exactly a mitzvah, uh, because he tried to sin. Now, is it the same level of sin? No. <clears throat> it's not the same level of sin, but it also depends on the sin. It depends on the sin. If it's, let's say, for example, the issues of morality, he wanted to sin with a woman that's forbidden to him, and he didn't succeed, then of course the uh, the sin of him even looking at her and thinking about her, that she's forbidden to him, is in itself a sin, but it's not the other sin of actually doing an act that was forbidden. So he has a sin, but it's not the full sin of if actually he committed the full act. But if it's, let's say, idolatry, idolatry is even if you think about idolatry, it's a sin. Even if you think about it, it's a sin. This is the reason why I tell people that they should never spend any time reading the New Testament uh, for, for, for any reason, uh, because it's full of idolatry. Even if you're trying to debate somebody, uh, reading that stuff is going to make you think of all types of idolatrous, forget, you know, forbidden things, and you should never read it. Uh, why did Chazal use names for the calendar that may have been uh, names of deities? Uh, or did the archaeologist anti-Jews invent that idea? Uh, this was actually a question that was an, uh, that was asked probably four or five years ago during the first maybe 30 lectures of this series, Stumped the Rabbi. Uh, they brought in the uh, couple of uh, months that had uh, names of, uh, of idols and uh, the Midrash says that uh, the reason why they named the sages named in months that way is actually to remind Am Yisrael of sins they made in order to use those months as auspicious times to do tshuva for idolatry. Uh, so, thank you for reminding us. How does the law 
how does the law man what? how does the law man should not act as a woman and vice versa apply to doing sports and doing jobs uh, well, obviously it depends on the on the circumstance as far as a uh, you know as far as sports women in general need to know that they have to be modest both inside and outside meaning both inside the house and outside the house so a woman running in public is never allowed not for a sport and not for exercise and not even to go run after a bus so she's not late to work a woman running after a uh, something or uh, running in public is never allowed because it's immodest because it makes her body move in certain ways that are not modest uh it's a uh it's it's uh something that uh, is forbidden according to all opinions now uh unfortunately some people think that oh if she wears uh you know uh, a lot of clothes then she's it's okay that she runs outside no it's never allowed to, for a woman to run outside now little kids there's no problem but once she's a grown woman that's a problem and even once uh, she's a little older it's again you have to be careful with who your kids play with but as far as women playing sports that uh, uh, the first thing you have to uh, uh, look at is the fact that sports in general are not modest uh, things you know the way that people behave the way that people uh, uh, dress or, or don't dress so there's no benefit that a woman is ever going to get uh, you know spiritually speaking for playing any sport for some reason people think that if a uh, Jewish person wins in a uh, in a uh, in a sports competition or wins a competition on television that makes it a kiddush Hashem people literally have no idea what kiddush Hashem is no one wants to be Jewish just because you won a sport or just because you won some contest or you won the lotto so uh, people don't understand that kiddush Hashem has nothing to do with Jewish people winning it's glorifying Hashem is kiddush Hashem a Jewish team winning a sport doesn't glorify Hashem in fact it's the opposite sports the whole the whole concept of sports came from idol worshippers the, the Greeks the Romans that had the Colosseums and who built the Colosseums Jewish slaves that they murdered and, and, and tortured and raped so sports is not exactly uh, 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 in line with Jewish thinking altogether you're allowed to exercise but sports are problematic altogether uh as far as ideology is concerned for women to play sports i don't know unless you call uh uh you know uh, playing uh, monopoly or, or 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 chess with your uh with your sisters a uh, sport uh, i don't know what sport would be allowed for women now if you were ever going to say that there's going to be a sport allowed for women it would be under the conditions that everyone has to be modest even if it's only women and it has to be only with women including the janitors and the teachers and everybody there which is in most cases not really possible so sports for a jewish woman uh i don't see that uh uh any any type of uh uh you know good direction that that's going to take anybody uh as far as jobs are concerned it's important for a woman to know that there are certain jobs that she should not have uh she should not have uh one is a uh, a woman should not you know is not allowed to be a soldier uh also she should not be, have a job where she's the center of attention uh whether it's a uh, a uh, uh 
uh, you know, a job like a newscaster or a judge or a, uh, uh, a lawyer. I know that there are Jewish women and some of them are even religious women that have these jobs, but that doesn't mean it's right. Uh, when you're the center of attention, it's a problem. Uh, it's a, uh, so that's, that's another thing. Uh, also, is a, a woman should not work in a place full of non-religious people, and needless to say, full of non-Jewish people. Uh, especially if she is among, uh, you know, men, uh, that uh, that's a problem. So a woman working in, let's say, for example, construction sites, uh, you know, and, and she's surrounded by men, it's definitely not a good job for a woman. Uh, I know that there are women, and some of them are even listening to our shulim, that are in the army, are in construction, are in police force, and so on. It doesn't mean it's right. So the idea for a woman is to have a job where she's not the center of attention she does some respectable living whatever it is uh without being the center of attention without exposing her to immodest men to men that are going to come on to her and try to provoke her to make sins uh without doing things that are against the torah and uh believe it or not there are plenty of jobs for a woman to do uh you know that's still going to keep her kosher and in fact, today there are more jobs for, for, for people than ever before. Because what people, a lot of people don't realize is that having the internet uh, and uh, having uh, artificial intelligence and having technology and having the uh, uh, consumerism addiction that's in the world and capitalism at, a, as, at, its, at its best uh, allows people to not only make a living but also allows people to even make a fortune working from home. Uh, there are plenty of things that people can do working from home. Uh, you could work for companies, you could work for yourself, you could do a service, you could do a lot of things, but I think that a lot of people are lazy. A lot of people are lazy, a lot of people don't put enough effort behind uh, uh, what, uh, you know, they just want you know, to be like sheep and they just want to collect a paycheck every couple of weeks. Uh, or a lot of people just don't think out of a box where they know one thing and they stay with that one thing. And, and generally speaking, if you know, the, the successful people in the world typically are ones that are able to adjust and change and adapt. Uh, so not everybody's like that. Most people aren't. But the point is, is that there are plenty of opportunities for women to make money even without leaving their house. Even without leaving their house. There are services that a person can make. There are things that a person can sell. There are, uh, uh, you know, there's a million things to do. Literally a million things to do. If I didn't do what I'm doing now, there's at least five or ten businesses that I would have without leaving the house. Why? Because it's literally, there's a lot of things that a person can do. Now, don't start texting me and say, oh, what do you recommend that I do? I don't know. I don't know who you are. I don't know what, what I recommend for anybody. The point is, is that it's a, uh, there are plenty of things to do without needing to take the risk of doing something that you shouldn't be doing. Why does a lazy man rationalize his laziness? How does this apply to our words of our mouth and our actions in our ishtadlut? Uh, well, lazy man, every, every person that's lazy knows that they, uh, uh, what they're doing is not going to bring them better results it's not going to give them good you know they're lazy and therefore they're not going to get to the appointment they're not going to get to promotion they're not going to get a lot of things in life because of their laziness 
But they rationalize their laziness because it's comfortable for them to be lazy, it's comfortable for them to be slow, it's comfortable for them to, uh, to live this way because it doesn't require any effort. Laziness does not require effort. Uh, in fact, the more lazy, the less effort. So as far as ishtadlut, ishtadlut is not laziness. Ishtadlut is, is, a, uh, is not connected to laziness. Ishtadlut is making an effort uh, that, uh, to do something based on your belief in Hashem. The more a person believes that Hashem will help them, the less they have to exert effort in doing things uh, uh, that uh, physically in order to uh, do in order to involving their own uh, actions in order to get something in essence they rely on Hashem to give them what they want but they use all that time that they're not chasing money let's say they use all that time to learn and to study and to do what they're obligated to do now this in general uh, is a is you know, a lot of people are delusional where they think that you know they are uh, they believe in God and therefore they should stop working and study Torah all day Number one, studying Torah all day is not something that everyone should do uh, uh, because either uh, they're not fit for it, two, their spouse is not fit for it, three, uh, there's, uh, some people don't have an obligation to do it. Like for example, for a Jew to study Torah all day, uh, as long as it doesn't create problems with his uh, wife and so on and they're able to make a living, uh, you know, and they have both have the similar levels of emunah, there's no problem. But for a Gentile to, uh, to not work and just study Torah all day, there's no mitzvah there. There's no mitzvah there. Why? Because the Gentile is not obligated to learn Torah. So a, for, for a Gentile to just stop doing what they're doing and just learn Torah all day, it's not, it's, and, and think that Hashem is going to reward him for it, that's not the, uh, uh, they're, they're, they're thinking wrong. They're, they're thinking they're doing something they're not obligated to do, and, you know, and, and they, uh, they're, uh, forsaking something that they're supposed to do. So a person needs to know that priority in life is to do what you're obligated to do. After you fulfill all the things you're obligated, then you can start thinking about things that you're not obligated. Now in regards to Ishtadlut, a person needs to know that if they have a lot of emuna in Hashem, a lot of faith in Hashem, that means that they could spend more time learning Torah, and 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 and, uh, and and teaching Torah and less time, you know, chasing money and doing the things that require a person to chase. But uh, this is something that takes a lot of time, a lot of effort, and a lot of learning and a lot of praying to develop uh, to where people, uh, uh, you know, uh, would want. It's not something that you could just develop overnight. So conversions covers all. Not obviously halfway. Uh, it's a must to move out to the Jewish community to have a kosher life. Uh, yes, in order to in order to uh, uh, convert to Judaism, a person has to uh, follow the Torah, everything that's relevant to him or to her. They have to follow all of it, accept all of it, believe all of it, and they have to live in a Jewish community because uh, they need the Jewish community in order to uh, you know to be part of Judaism. Uh, it's a, uh, it's, it's not uh, um, possible for him to be a brand new Jew and know what to do, and he's living in the middle of Montana by himself. Not possible. Uh, can any person become a Jew even if he's not born a Jew? Yes, 
people can convert to Judaism and they do every single day. Uh, there's actually a, uh, a conversion syllabus that we have uh, that uh, tells people the details of what they need to learn in order to uh, uh, become a Jew. Uh, so there's both knowledge that they need to acquire and certain life changes they need to make, you know, moving to a Jewish community, praying, becoming modest, eating kosher, and, and so on and so forth. And there's a lecture series that I made uh, that discuss conversion that you can find on our YouTube page. Uh, there's a playlist for conversions, uh, and uh, there's also a playlist for Noahides, uh, people that don't necessarily want to convert to Judaism or can't convert to Judaism, but they still want to be righteous people. So there's lectures over there for them. Um, but anyone that wants to convert can go to our website or go to our YouTube page and uh, look up those lectures, or you could uh, email us at uh, convert at bezatashem.org, and we could send you that syllabus to a review, uh, and uh, you could do what you want with it. Here we go. Hold on a second. What's the normal question? You keep saying you asked the question, but I don't see it. do you think of what Lubavitchers say? What do they say? If you're, if you're asking me, do I agree with them that they think that the Lubavitcher Rebbe that died almost 30 years ago is the Mashiach? No, obviously I don't agree with them and neither does the majority of the Jewish world. But that's not going to change their mind. Why did the words Goy and Gentile sound derogatory? That's because of lack of knowledge that people have. The, you know, the, uh, the more knowledge a person has about Torah, the more they understand that there is uh, you know, nothing derogatory uh, in the Torah that uh, is there to insult anybody. Uh, a goy means a nation. Uh, it's a, uh, even the Jewish people are referred to as a goy. Goy kadosh, holy goy, holy nation. Uh, the word Gentile just simply means not Jewish. There's a Jew and there's a non-Jew. Uh, uh, this is simply the way that uh, the language is uh, used uh, and, and structured. Uh, as far as derogatory, there's nothing derogatory about it. It's, a, uh, it's your perception of it, but it doesn't necessarily make you right. Why would a man need to read the first five books of the Torah all day? 
Uh, well, he won't need to read the first five books of the Torah all day. Uh, he would need to learn Torah uh, as much as possible, if possible, even all day. But the Torah is much bigger than the five books of Moses. There are literally millions of books uh, that uh, are part of the Torah. There's the written Torah and there's the oral Torah. The written Torah is the five books of Moses. But then there's the oral Torah. There's the rest of the Tanakh. There's another 19 books of the prophets and the writings. But there's also the Talmud. There's also the Zohar. There's also Shulchan Aruch. There's the Rambam. There's the different Rishonim uh, and Achronim. There's the Poskim. There's Hasidut. There's Musar. Uh, there's uh, a lot. There's a lot. There's Kabbalah. There's a, uh, the Jewish world has literally millions of books. There's no... Uh, nation in history that had even remotely close to the amount of uh, knowledge as the Jewish people. In fact, even if you combine all of the books of all of the nations, combine them together today, it won't equal to the amount of books that the Jewish people have. Uh, it's a, you know, there's new books coming out every day. There's new books, uh, Baruch Hashem, that uh, are elaborating on existing knowledge. But uh, the point is that when a person is a Torah scholar, they're not studying the same thing over and over again. They're expanding on their knowledge. They're reading more and more. And that's, in essence, all scholars continue to expand on their knowledge, even if they're scholars in different fields, not Torah. They're scholars in science. They're scholars in uh, archaeology. They're scholars in mathematics. They're scholars in different fields. They don't study the same thing over and over again. They keep expanding on that knowledge. There's a wealth of knowledge out there, and uh, people continue to expand on it, and uh, that's what scholars do. Free Palestine. It is free. I keep telling you guys. It's called Israel. It's free. It's free from terrorism. It's free from the uh, all the uh, uh, shahidim. Uh, let me see. Why don't Jews try to convert people, evangelize, the way other religions do? Uh, that's a good question. So it's not that the Jewish people are against converts. In fact, there are 36 places in the Torah, and according to the Zohar, 48 places uh, that the uh, Hashem talks about His love for converts and how uh, amazing they are and when they're righteous converts. When they're wicked converts, they are worse of the worst. They're the Erev Rav. But when they're righteous converts, they're amazing. And uh, in fact, the Kadosh Baruch Hu loves converts and uh, he made a lot of different, uh, uh, not only statements, but different things happen in the world in order for there to be more converts. But that does not mean that uh, the Jewish people have to go chase them uh, for a few reasons. One reason is that Judaism is not for everybody. It's simply not for everybody. Not necessarily because uh, people don't want to... Uh, uh, adopt the law or anything like that but simply because that's not their tikkun in the world that's not their job in the world to, to convert to Judaism they could simply be righteous Gentiles the second thing is is that Hashem doesn't want everybody you know it's a uh, chosen people means people that are chosen by Hashem uh, to, uh, to be his uh, you know his, his holy people uh, he doesn't want everyone because not everyone is fit to do this particular job. Just like any, you know, Lehavdil, uh, a major company, doesn't want everyone to be the CEO, doesn't want everyone to be a, be a vice president. 
doesn't want everyone to be a uh, you know a CFO or a, a, some type of executive. Uh, it doesn't even want everyone to be a janitor. The point is, is that there's roles, that every, there's positions that people have uh, in the world, and uh, Hashem runs the world in that fashion. So that's another thing. Third thing is, is that it's a uh, throughout most of history, the uh, anti-Semitism was the dominant force in the world, where it was a uh, uh, simply the standard practice around the world. People think that anti-Semitism started right before the Holocaust. What they don't realize is that up until the uh, uh, the French Revolution, 1776, uh, the Jewish people, uh, you know, pretty much had no permission to do anything. In fact, until the 1815, uh, the year 1815, so approximately 200 years ago, Jews were not allowed to live in cities. Uh, the, uh, the, the book... Uh, uh, that has a lot of interesting history in there, uh, brings a lot of a lot of different science uh, or, or historical factors and so on about the Jewish people. It says that in the world in 1815 there was two and a half million Jews only, and uh, 200,000 of them lived in Germany, and uh, out of all of the people, only 3,000 lived in cities because they were forbidden from living in a uh, uh, in cities. And in fact there was a law in, uh, in, in different parts of Europe where any time a Jew is walking in the street and a Christian uh, 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 was there also, the Christian can uh, uh, said, Jew, pay your respects. And the Jew would have to take his hat out and like, in essence, like bow to the, uh, to the Christian. So anti-Semitism is not something that started during, you know, during the Holocaust. Anti-Semitism was standard practice. You know, we, we, you know, the Jewish people were living outside, in a, you know, outside of the cities. They were not allowed to do most professions. This is the reason why many times Jews uh, got into trading and money lending because not because they wanted that business. It was because that was the only business they were allowed to do. They weren't allowed to be carpenters. They weren't allowed to be, uh, you know, in a jewelry business or in banking a lot of times. Uh, there was only a re, uh, uh, they resorted to it out of uh, necessity, uh, and in those days, banking wasn't exactly a very profitable trade until a few families in the Jewish world succeeded in it. Uh, but uh, many of the professions, whether it be medicine or legal or government, uh, different uh, types of politics, they were forbidden to, for Jews to even be involved in. Most professions were forbidden for Jews to do. Uh, so, for the point I'm trying to make is that. After 1815, the, uh, the Enlightenment movement, uh, which came from, unfortunately, from uh, Jewish people that were abandoning Judaism, and uh, they wanted to become European. They wanted to become Gentiles. And one of the ways that they did it uh, is by, in essence, promoting uh, Christianity Christi in the Jewish communities, promoting Christianity in Jewish communities. Uh, and... Uh, to, to the extent where converting to Christianity became the thing to do, not necessarily because the Jewish people believed in Yoshke and the idolatry of Christianity, but rather because that was a social status. That was a way for a person to achieve uh, social status, to be able to be accepted among more of the Gentiles, uh, to have more opportunities as far as work, 
and, uh, and and this is one of the things that happened in the last couple of hundred years. But again, it's a uh, it got to a point where Jews were marrying Gentiles uh, on a regular basis, and uh, and the anti-Semitism didn't stop as a result of this. There was still anti-Semitism. In fact, the intermarriage uh, between Jews and Gentiles not only didn't stop anti-Semitism, it actually got worse. As we all know, the Holocaust, a hundred years later, uh, wiped out six million Jews. So the point is, is that throughout all of history, the Jewish people have been tortured, uh, you know, killed, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know and, and attacked in every way, shape, or form. So for the Jewish people to go and knock on the doors of Gentiles, say, hey, by the way, you want to be Jewish? You want to be one of us that gets tortured and killed and hung just because of your beliefs? That obviously <laughs> doesn't work. That doesn't work. That's also the reason why the Shulchan Aruch, uh, when it talks about the laws of conversion, the original laws of conversion says that the uh, the uh, the guy comes. He says he wants to convert. They, uh, in essence, give him, tell him, no, maybe you shouldn't a couple of times. But if they see that he's serious, they convert him on the spot. It wasn't a whole conversion courses and study sessions and anything else. They literally convert him on the spot. Why would they convert him on the spot? Because if you know the basics of the of the law you know what shabbat is you know you have to eat kosher food and you also know that there's persecution there's anti-semitism you're very likely to die young because the 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 gentiles are going to kill you because they hate us and you still want to be one of us you must be a righteous person so we want you (laughs) so that there was no that's the thing so conversion was something most people didn't want to do because it literally meant death it meant death. Many Jews uh, hid their Judaism. In fact, the uh, the new podcast that's coming out, Bezod Hashem, in a couple of days, uh, is a uh, podcast of a person that didn't know much about Judaism, uh, not because he didn't want to, but rather because his own family hid the fact that they were Jewish because of the tragedy that happened to the family during the Holocaust. So it's, a, uh, it's, it's important for a person to know that, you know, for Jewish people to go and evangelize was simply not uh, a possibility throughout all of history. And for us to do it today doesn't really make much sense because so many of our own brethren are not observant of the Torah. Uh, nearly 80% of the Jewish people don't observe Shabbat. So our priority has to be our own people rather than to go and convert the non-Jews. Now, if the non-Jews want to convert uh, without us chasing them, they want to be Jewish without us chasing them, then it's a mitzvah to help them. Help them, you know, if, if you could guide them in any way without it, uh, you know, uh, making you incapable of helping Jews that are needing your attention, then certainly help them. But to go and chase non-Jews when there are so many Jews that are already obligated to do it, it doesn't make sense. And it's not allowed. And that's why, uh, as I've said in the past, it's Ju- Judaism, when it comes to the Torah, it's not about marketing, it's not about popularity, it's about obligation. If you have a 10,000 non-Jews that are willing to invite you to a stadium to speak to them about Torah, and they're willing to pay you a million dollars, and then you have one Jew 
that wants to learn Torah with you right now. So it's either go to this event, get a million bucks, and teach 10,000 Gentiles, or teach one Jew for free. You are obligated to stay with that one Jew. Why? Because he is obligated to learn Torah. They are not. They are not. Now, if the uh, uh, the the you're able to do uh, fulfill your responsibility, your obligation, and also help others, no problem. But that's the thing. It's a usually there are people that are making the choices to help to focus only on Gentiles, not because they care about the Gentiles, because they care about money. There's simply more money in the Gentile world than there is in the Jewish world. There's simply more of them. Uh, but according to the Torah, every Jew is obligated to help his fellow Jew first. If a Gentile wants to come convert to Judaism, there's certainly a mitzvah to help them. But it's a, uh, again, to go chase after Gentiles and uh, try to convince them to convert to Judaism, there's, uh, that's simply not on the priority list because there's too many other people that are obligated already. Uh, so that's why we don't missionize. How do you convert? Uh, okay, so in order to convert to Judaism, a person needs to know that there's only one truth. There's not multiple truths. It's not like in Christianity, Catholicism, uh, there's Protestants, there's Lutherans, there's, uh, you know, there's uh, ones that uh, do all types of strange uh, uh, things with snakes. Uh, and sometimes you see the pastor dying on the stage with a snake that he says heals. Uh, and then you uh, have all types of uh, uh, different uh, animosity among them. No, in Judaism, there's only uh, you know one truth, which is the belief in Orthodox Judaism. Now there are different cultures among Orthodox Judaism, meaning there is Orthodox Judaism with cultures uh, and customs of the Ashkenazim, of the Hasidim, of the Sfaradim. But the truth is Orthodox Judaism. Reform, conservative, open orthodoxy, all that other stuff, that's not Judaism. That is, in essence, like their name, that is reforming the truth. That is changing the truth. So uh, it's important to know that to be a Jew, that means, uh, as far as righteousness and, and, and following the Torah, that means you have to follow orthodox Judaism. Everything else is false. Not because I said it, because that's what the Torah is. What did Moshe Rabbeinu follow? He followed orthodox Judaism. He didn't follow reform. Moshe Rabbeinu did not follow reform, he did not follow open orthodoxy, he didn't follow modern orthodoxy, he didn't follow uh, uh, conservative, and he certainly didn't follow messianic. So, it's important for a person to know what the truth is. Truth is, orthodox Judaism. Now, in order for a person to be an orthodox Jew, if they weren't born that way, is that they have to go through a conversion process. And a conversion process is, number one, they have to learn the things that uh, they need to know in order to live a Jewish life. There's a syllabus that we have that talks, uh, that gives you those topics and even recommendations of different books that you can buy in different stores or on the internet that are going to teach you the basic things you need to do, to do and know in order to be a Jew. The second thing that person needs to do is they need to make certain life changes uh, in order to live a Jewish life, which means 
one of those things is to move and live in a Jewish community, uh, to act Jewish, which is, you know, if they're, you know, they have to be modest, they have to be, uh, uh, you know, learn Torah, they have to eat kosher food. So different things that are required of a Jewish life. And last but not least, after they've done those couple of things, then they can go to a Jewish, uh, to an Orthodox Beddin, which is a Jewish court, and in order to convert. Now, usually to do all of what I just said requires a person to have some connection to a rabbi that's going to act as their sponsor uh, and guide in order to recommend them to the Beddin when the time comes. The process is not a short one. It takes time, uh, both because it takes time to learn as well as it takes time to make those life changes. But it's certainly possible, and there's more conversions to Orthodox Judaism today than any other time in history. Uh, but the same token, it doesn't make it any easier. But if you want to convert, there's certainly uh, ways to convert. There are uh, uh, bed deans, uh, Jewish courts in uh, different parts of the United States, in New York, in California, uh, in a, uh, uh, Florida, and I think in Maryland there is. Uh, there's several states that have uh, Jewish bed deans. There is a, uh, obviously some in Australia and England and um uh, in Israel, of course, you know, there's, there's plenty of uh, uh, different places where there's Jewish communities, but it doesn't necessarily mean that those uh, are next to you, so you'll have to probably move. Either way, it's a process. It's, a, uh, it's not uh, a quick journey. It's not, a, uh, you're not, it's not immigration, and it's not getting a driver's license. Like Some people think that uh, you know, converting to Judaism is like, oh, I, you know, did you have an open file for me? Like This is not immigration. <clears throat> you're not getting a passport. It's not a certificate that says you're Jewish. <clears throat> You're going to get a certificate, but that's not the important part. The important part is the lifestyle changes and what happens to your neshama. You get a new neshama, you get a new soul. So that takes time. It takes time, it takes commitment. Uh, and uh, it doesn't uh, work the same way for different people. Different, some people have an easier time, some people have a hard time. Some people it takes them uh, you know, a year to, to, uh, to convert. Some people can be in the process of conversion for 20 years. It all depends. It all depends on different people. But needless to say, it's uh, it's certainly possible. Okay, guys, I need to still keep some energy for my next year. Um, are we allowed to go to a Broadway play, show, theater? Um, most of these shows have immodesty and immorality on them. Uh, people kissing, dancing, all that type of stuff. So I don't see why a religious Jew would be able to go to such a thing. Uh, can I attend a outdoor classical music concert with family? If the seating is segregated uh, and men are you know, sitting separate from women, there's no problem. What's the reason why there's no music in the month of, of Tammuz? Uh, it's because it's a time of mourning. Music usually uplifts a person. Laws of seclusion between men and women, both Jews and Gentiles, uh, private and professional. There's a, a lot of them. I, it's not a shame. I mean, I discussed it a couple of weeks ago, but uh, you know, there's a lot, a lot more that we can discuss. But not a shame. We'll talk about it more extensively maybe next week in some of the shulim. Not a shame. 
Okay, thank you very much for learning with me. Shem bless each and every single one of you. Anyone that wants to give out some of our books, or USBs, the books are in Hebrew, the USBs are in English. Uh, you can get free copies on bhkiruv.org. If you want to donate to help us do all the wonderful things that we're doing for free, uh, to help Amisled, to help people, to help uh, anyone that get, wants to get closer to Hashem, uh, then you can donate on our websites, bezatashem.org, bhtorah.org, on the app, on YouTube, you could even donate by becoming like a subscriber that pays. Uh, you could donate on Facebook. Uh, you could send a check. You could send a dove that carries a million dollars. You can you could uh, simply, uh, uh, you know, wire the money. Uh, or you could just buy us a bank and just leave the money in there and we can get it. Or you could just simply watch for free and don't donate anything, but enjoy the shulim and follow the Torah. That's best. School mitzvot. We'll talk soon. Shem bless all of you. Kol tuf. That night, I went down with the highest fever I've ever had in my life. I mean, we're not talking an average fever. We're talking what they call valley fever. And you get these nodules in your lungs where you can't breathe. It almost feels like COVID. Really severe COVID. I think that time I actually did get COVID. I was one of the first patients probably. They call patient zero. Horrible. They wanted to tap my spine to check what was going on. Horrible situation. They blew out all my veins in the hospitals because they were putting so much fluids into me. All my veins felt like rubber. I felt like I was going to die. I'm laying in the hospital. They put me in ice. For hours, I was in ice. Then I got sick again the same way. And again, horrible. Like, I'm dying. You get to a point where you're dying, you start questioning things. You start growing. Hashem loves us for his children. And I think if he sees there's potential, he will make it that you are going to be his servant. I'm built like a train. And I felt like that. I could lift anything. I felt unstoppable. And Hashem showed me otherwise.